When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Mr. Christopher Harrington at Mukigana, joined by my north by northeast by Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you today? I'm fine, Mookie. How are you? All right, it's July 27, 2017. I took work off today. You took work off today, of course, because it's WWE Q2. It's International WrestleNomics Appreciation Day. It, it is. The, you know, somebody um, tweeted at Brian Alvarez today when he uh, plugged our WrestleNomics, and they're like, it's the only podcast I listen to. And I looked up this person on oh. Twitter, because it was not a person that I interact with ever. And uh, it said that they sell homes, and they used to be a professional wrestler, and they appear to be out of Bogota, Colombia. So uh, we're big in the Colombia. Like the country of Colombia. Yes, not the district. A former professional wrestler who lives in Colombia. That's what it said. It, it appeared to be a woman, too. So I was just like, wow. this is this is hitting all the uh, WrestleNomics buttons of things that I just did not expect to see today. So uh, if you are listening, uh, thank you again for supporting the show. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people listening to the show. I mean, that's that's what the analytics tell us. So, well, it could be millions. They listen all over the world, apparently. It could be millions. Sometimes people uh, they look at the WWE filings and they're like, "I can't believe WWE invested five thousand dollars in tout." Right. And I was like, "No, that that's five million dollars. They just write it as five thousand because no one has to report if you invest five hundred dollars in something." Right. They get rid of those three zeros. Yes. So, so for all we know, our analytics could be doing the same to us, and we could have 1,000 times more listeners than we think. You want to talk about WQ2? <laughs> I guess so, if I must. Uh, it was a, a fun little call today. Uh, we had George, we had Michelle, and of course we had Vince McMahon. Uh, his, what did, what did uh, George refer to him on the, the call as? His esteemed boss? Yeah, I think that's what he said. And uh, WWE was really proud to announce that they basically made hundreds of millions of dollars this year on just the second quarter of the year. I think, what, it was uh, 200-something million? 
something like that. If we, uh, if I had the numbers in front of me, I do have the numbers in front of me. I'm just delaying as I open up that extra spreadsheet. You know, this morning I took a picture of my my screen of of like my desktop, and I think I had like 11 tabs open because you have to have the KPIs open, the trending. Is, schedule. is that all you have open right now? Is 11 tabs? <laughs> the the 8K filing, the 10K, the 10Q filing, the webcast, Twitter, of course. Uh, you know. It's yeah, two hundred and fourteen, five hundred and eighty six thousand and some odd two hundred and fourteen million dollars in Q two for net revenue. So a very good second quarter number, meaning that takes their one half year number all the way up to four hundred and three million dollars. How many years do you think it would take TNA to make four hundred and three million dollars in revenue? Um I don't I don't know if there are enough years in time. Uh <laughs> That is that is probably accurate. Um, so that was exciting for them. What was probably uh, less exciting for them was the fact that despite making $214 million this quarter, because, of course, it was the WrestleMania quarter and making $188 million the quarter before, uh, they really have only grossed about $28 million in OBITA, again, operating income before depreciation and amortization. Uh, compared to last year when they were closer to almost 35 million on OBITA. And of course, WWE got around that by creating their new measure, adjusted OBITA, where they basically get to take out things that they don't want to be part of OBITA. So in this case, they took out uh, film impairment charges that they gave themselves for WWE films and also some big legal costs that they had. And so they were able to basically uh, come back and say, no, 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 we made $36 million in profit this quarter compared to only 35 last year. So uh, again, kind of the the fun non-gap measures that we see going on with WWE financials when you really dig into the the balance sheets, meaning you can sometimes tell any story you want to tell depending on which numbers you want to look at and how you want to spin those numbers. So with adjusted OEBDA versus OEBDA, as as we know, They've predicted they're going to project that they're going to have a million, hundred million dollars in, in OIBDA uh, by the end of the year. Do you think they mean that in adjusted OIBDA, or do they, do they mean that in like old-fashioned OIBDA? And do you think that maybe they're going to make ninety something in regular OIBDA, but maybe once they, you know, say adjusted OIBDA, oh, it's a hundred and one? I'm pretty sure the hundred million number is adjusted OIBDA. And I don't think that it's 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 not arbitrary when they decide to use these kind of definitions. They they basically say it's because if it's going to be a non-reoccurring charge, uh, so it's a one-time only expense is why they try to justify it. So they're basically trying to say we don't expect to overestimate the profits on future WWE films, and so this is a one-time only uh, uh, impairment. And the other one of the 5.6 million, we don't really even know exactly what they're spending that on. It could be anything from just more legal costs going into the CTE lawsuit and the royalties lawsuit. It could be anything including maybe even a royalty payments to the patent trolls that, that sue them over various patent things. It could be just uh, general legal expenses of just prosecuting all this stuff to, uh, you know, there is an increase in other things that we saw going on this time. There was, uh, they just called it certain legal matters and other contractual obligations for $5.6 million. So leaves it really open to definition. But of course, uh, they, they have the opportunity to take any non-reoccurring uh, balance sheet thing and really recategorize it like that. So, just do you think that's fair? Or the, like, is that fair to investors? Like, I mean, they're being pretty clear about what it, what it is adjusted a wee bit is, but you just have to take some time to actually read and figure out what they're saying. 
I don't think it's unfair in the sense that it's a non-GAAP measure, and any non-GAAP measure means that they're already coming up with their own accounting practices. And that's why the 10Q statement is so much more important than the 8Q, 8K statement, because at least on the 10Q, they're basically bound by what rules they have to file in terms of financial disclosures and how those financial disclosures work. And that's why when you read through a 10Q from quarter to quarter, it pretty much reports exactly the same information. And if anything, it has them going into more and more and more detail now. So for instance, when you go to the latest 10Q statement, and if anyone out there wants to go look at the 10Q statement, you can just go to sec.gov. Up in the corner there, look for company filings, go to the fast uh, lookup thing, type in WWE, and it should probably be the very first thing that pops up there. Uh, but a 10Q will come up and it will have details for things like what is the NXT revenue for the year and how many people have been going to NXT shows. Because as you probably remember, Brandon, they don't actually put NXT data in the numbers for uh, uh, live events. They leave it off in their own little bucket. And so they mentioned here that we did 95 NXT events for the first half of the year with 86,400 people. Uh, total, which I worked out to about 910 people a show, and average ticket prices is about 40 bucks compared to 100 NXT events with paid attendance of 91,200 people, so 912 people a show, so virtually unchanged, with average ticket prices of only 29 bucks a show. So uh, it's interesting because we get you know some some numbers here in terms of the revenue that shows up, but that shows up on the 10Q statement because basically the SEC called out WWE saying. How can you talk about these events and then never give us any financial detail? You have to be very specific. Describe why you're making more money, where that money's come from, and be very clear on that. So the 10Qs are really good about that. The 8Ks, which is basically a press release, is just their choice of which financial things that they want to mention. They typically, of course, are going to mention what net revenue is and what their OBITA was, their adjusted OBITA, but it's not really held to exactly the same standards as that kind of more required filings that they have to do. Yeah, and so, which seems I mean to take NXT events out of your averages for your with your average live event draws that seems fair enough, especially when you got NXT events that are drawing, you know, two and three hundred people. Um, Absolutely, but I mean, like you you pointed out here, you know, you're looking at almost three million dollars of revenue for the first half of the year. Yeah, that you know. That's a lot more revenue than some of their other revenue streams that they make. You know, that's the same amount of revenue they made in home entertainment this quarter. That's um, more revenue. Than they're making with the WWE Studios. Well, it's about equal, 4.8 million. <laughs> it's, it's more than nothing, so yes. Yeah, well, so it's, re- it's revenue. That's right. It's not, it is not revenue. Profit. It's it's you know, that NXT revenue alone that you know puts it in the running for probably what number three largest wrestling organization in the world, <laughs> maybe number five. Let's see. So in so in, in the first half of 2017, three and a half million. So that's say seven million in a year. Is is Ring of Honor pulling in seven million in a year? Oh, that's a good question. Um, gosh. See, now we're getting into the number crunching of, of things. And this is way more events, too, right? So uh, uh, 95 events. So it's almost 200 events in a year. Ring of Honor is not running 200 events in a year, right? No, no, they're not. They're running somewhere under – somewhere like 50 to 60 events, somewhere in that neighborhood, right? Just a guess. But let's flip it around the other way. So they do somewhere between six and seven million dollars of of live event revenue a year. Do you think that their talent payroll is greater than or less than six to seven million dollars? Uh, greater than, and yes. then not to mention the whatever the recurring costs costs are of uh, keeping the performance center open. Yeah, not just that. I mean, just this quarter alone, um, they actually made a note 
about why their corporate and other went up by so much. And a lot of that went into what they called um, – they said our corporate and other increased by $2.3 million this current quarter. This was primarily due to higher staff-related costs of $1.3 million. So that's more on the like actual staff business support side. And then uh, talent-related costs of $0.5 million in support of talent development. So I almost wonder if um, some of that is like the Shawn Michaels of the world of you know, making moving him down to NXT and, and giving him a half a million bucks of you know yeah. talent development dollars and whatnot. So, maybe, maybe that's why they had to send Johnny St. Holmes so they could afford Shawn Michaels. Yeah. Was it Johnny St. or was it uh, Robbie Brookside? Well, I think Robbie Brookside is, is still there, but Johnny oh, okay. St. I, I guess did a stint there and he, a few weeks ago. He, uh, he ended his whatever work he was doing at the Performance Center. Which I gotta say, I I like that a lot. Uh, I know we're we're jumping all over the place here, but uh, I like that a lot that they do that with NXT with giving so- certain people da- chances to go down there and do kind of shifts of talent development because I think that's a kind of attitude that will pay some dividends is giving people an opportunity to work with a coach and you know for both the coaches and the talent it's probably good not to always have the same people there all the time just like college you want to have different professors right yeah for sure so getting back to kind of WWE Q2 notes. Um, they increased their net revenue income. It came from a combination, of course, the the TV deal being up by about 5.2 million, uh, WWE Network numbers being up by about 3.2 million worth of revenue, and then 2.8 million came just from Total Divas. And so, when almost you know a fifth of your revenue increase for the year is coming from just the fact that you're airing more episodes of Total Divas, I think that speaks a lot to how important that show has been as a an additional pillar for WWE and revenue over the last kind of three, five years here. Uh, I think sometimes it might be underappreciated just how much value that show has had for them on both exposure on a, a non wrestling audience and exposure on a different network, but also in, in terms of ap- actual revenue that it gets. Yeah. And like you said, it, it gets to a different audience. It's, if you think about the audience that watches Total Divas, it's probably not a lot of wrestling fans, although I'm sure it's some wrestling fans as well, but it, it it gives W the chance to be the company that it it really envisions it itself as is this company that does more than just wrestling. They they do reality shows on the E network and, and it's uh it's doing a lot better than W Studios anyway. Well, and so then you you kind of also have the side of like what are they doing to make more profit? And I think they they explain the profit is something like um you know we're getting 2.8 million for running more live events we're getting 2.6 million from the total divas airing more episodes we're getting um i'm sorry th- this is cost side that they they spent 2.8 million more because of, they ran more events they spent 2.6 million because they had to produce more episodes of total divas spent 1.1 million this quarter on the impairment charge but they reduced the cost WWE network segment by lowering the cost of programming of 6.4 million dollars in savings and they said that came from uh not having to do swerved and camp WWE and so total divas has been one of the things that they recently added to the network kind of in mass and well, it's it is, all old episodes on it is but but just kind of like as opposed to having to create um original programming i almost wonder how much more cost effective it's actually ended up being just to put old total divas net episodes up versus having to produce a whole animated series like camp wwe does it cost them anything to put old old videos up other than the time i guess that it takes whatever employees to upload it and configure it properly in the network well you know i think a lot of times that they do have kind of certain advertising campaigns that go along with things. And I'm sure you amortize a little bit across those campaigns. 
because you, you don't want to flood people's emails. So if you're going to spend this email blast on saying, hey, everyone, go watch Total Divas, that's an email blast you're not spending on Saturday night main event episodes or something else. So th there's probably an opportunity cost. But no, I don't think there's a large uh, a cost associated with it. Well, or as, they, as like Michelle Wilson and Barrio say all the time, is that they got all this customized marketing going out. So maybe, in, in fact, the people that they would send emails out to to say, "Hey, we got more Saturday night's main event on here," are not maybe not the same people who you would send email blasts out to when you've got new Total Divas episodes on the network. Or Speaking of old of, ones. of of women content on the network, they they had a lot of praise there for the May Young tournament on the network yeah. uh vince was going off about that it, it's fun because they put the scripts up kind of ahead of time by saying here's the press release and then they also have these these slides that they put up which are the earning slides and so they have basically what they're going to talk about but vince is fun because you can watch him start on his point and then like trump he immediately just goes into <laughs> vince mode and you never know exactly what he's going to say and so how did he describe may young would you like to hear him Yes, please. Um, some more interesting things that we've got going on as well. Uh, young individuals who are scheduled to uh, one day compete for us uh, down at the Performance Center. Uh, the Mayon Classic is really a, a, an opportunity to bring up uh, young uh, female performers, which is very uh, it, it, it's vital actually to our overall product. Many of the core hours you see in television uh, reflect uh, our women superstars. So this is an opportunity, obviously, to grow that base, which we haven't done all that well in the past. So, because that's, that's something that Triple H said a week or, I think last time we talked here, uh, he, he had an interview with the Wall Street Journal saying that, you know, the, the, the women's segments, their quarter hours do really well. Or, or if he didn't say that exactly, he certainly implied it, and there's been saying it again. Is this, is this something we've heard before in uh, Business Partner Summit and stuff like that? For at the beginning of this year, definitely. I think, you know, when they, they must have had a retreat at some point. And instead of all going to Vince's pool, uh, they all headed off to uh, Merrimack Island in Michigan or something. And they sat around and they decided what is going to be our theme for this year. And I think one of the big themes that they developed this year was this idea of, of women competitors, women uh, empowerment, and all the things that have gone along with that. And so it's been both the, the discussion about we listen to our fans, we change the way that, that the name Divas appears. We, you know, we have Ronda Rousey come into our shows, that we have this Mae Young Classic and everything else that they've tied into it. And so I feel like this has been their big marketing push this year is this idea that they listen to their fans and that it's important for them to develop female-centric licensing, merchandising, superstars, elevations talent everything because you know they just rolled out that whole mattel uh line uh, uh focused around you know kind of like i think they called them dolls you know as opposed to action figures uh right. but and you I, I read this uh fortune magazine article that uh i, I had to do as part of the, the homework for wrestlenomics radio and you've got you know stephanie mcmahon saying uh well the, the name diva came from uh you know Musical artists like Aretha Franklin, it was a very positive name, you know. It was very positive. Well, then why did people uh, want it changed? I don't know. Which is always funny to me, too, because as we mentioned earlier, there's a show called Total Divas that they are very proud of, and they're clearly not getting rid of the branding there. Uh, you know, of course, there's Total Bellas, but I would argue, you know, if you, you look at... They have a thousand spinoff shows about the Bellas right now. If you look at the trademark filings, there's Bella Glam, there's Bella Appetite, 
there's uh Bella style, there's like a yoga show about the Bellas, there's like a hundred different spin-off names that they've proposed. Uh but they keep the total divas name and of course they just started the new season and the new casting for the season. Or not new casting, the new and cast members announced and the new season is coming up soon here. So um do we know whether women's segments are the highest rated? Well, I think just like any other talent segment they are when they are and they're not always so you know yeah. it, the super super big stars the brock lesners of the world tend to do very well obviously samoa joe was moving ratings for a little while which got him a lot of attention braun Strowman has done well roman reigns as we'll get into much much later in the show here doesn't do terrible um yeah you know, and, and I, I, I would think i would think the people who do do well in quarter hours would be the would be the people who do well with youtube views which is something i, I would just looked at this past week um and they're the, the big four that I found when, when I just did that, and we might talk about this more in a little while, were Roman Reigns, John Cena, Braun Strowman, and Brock Lesnar. Uh, Nikki Bella was in about the top 15 as well, Alexa Bliss in there too, but uh, it, was, it was mostly male performers there. Um, but yeah, but Nikki Bella had a lot of one million, uh, one mil, you know, videos that had been viewed one million times. And well, part of that was because she was in the, it's kind of like a, a tag team or she was in that tag team match with John Cena going into WrestleMania. But even with, without that, um, I think she still would have been one video away from being the, you know, having the, the most one million view videos uh, just out of Alexa Bliss. Because if she hadn't been with Cena, she would have been with somebody else. She would have been programmed, you know, with somebody else and there would, she would have been some other feud and there would have, probably would have been another video that did a million that would have put her ahead of Alexa Bliss. But, and we do know about that one time a, a year ago where, uh, there was a Sasha Banks and Charlotte match, uh, where this is one of the matches where Sasha Banks wins the title and, and that was the most viewed segment, uh, on, on that entire episode of Raw. So it's, it's, it's gotta be happening at least occasionally. And they're not killers, that's for sure. They're, they're not destroying the ratings any more than, than any other person ever does. And if anything, it does sound like that, both from a narrative standpoint, from a creative direction standpoint, and from a, programming standpoint they, they seem to believe this so uh you know hopefully someday we will get those quarter hour numbers again and we can sit there and crunch them but we'll take some of their word for it right now and of course the fact that they're investing in the may young classic and they're investing in this talent and these storylines and whatnot says a lot about their interest in developing things this direction and going back several calls ago vince was talking about how if you break down the demographics into kind of male female, young and old, you know, kind of the quadrants, and what do they have that they've developed? You think about some of the programming I mentioned earlier, Swerved or Camp WWE, those were probably gravitating more towards the male, either juvenile or, or, or older generation, and I think that he felt that maybe there wasn't as much development going on about how we're going to reach our female demographic of fans, and so... Some of this might, in fact, be a response to the fact that there was less of that going on. And then, of course, like we said, Total Divas is now on the network. There's other programming that's being directed towards uh, um, stronger female imagery on the network. So I, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, yep. we're seeing a development in that way. Yeah. Well, I think Total Divas going on the network is kind of inevitable, right? Because I think like when, when the network launched, I think that's one of the things that it, besides all the pay-per-views that it already had, it had like the first season of Total Divas on it. So I think Total Divas would would have, whether it, I don't know if it would have come if it came sooner because of this or or what, but it would have, whatever season they just uploaded to the network of Total Divas would have been uploaded eventually anyway. Speaking of the network, uh, let's talk some through the network numbers here. 
they mentioned that they did $8.6 million in pay-per-view dollars, traditional pay-per-view dollars in the first half of this year compared to only $8 million last year. And one of the reasons that they did more revenue this year was, in fact, driven by more events by having these branded pay-per-views, which speaks a lot to the difference between having network-branded pay-per-views and pay-per-view-branded pay-per-views in the sense that uh, you get more buys and you get incremental revenue by running split pay-per-views in a traditional model. But in the network model, that's not so true. And in fact, I think that's something where we're seeing that they're spending a lot more money to run these branded pay-per-views, but you're not really seeing a huge swell of new subscribers or necessarily retain subscribers. Obviously, when you're only looking at the top line numbers, it's very hard to pull apart why is someone subscribing, but from what I see, at least. Um, and so it's a lot harder to justify, in my mind, the dual branded pay-per-view model. Not saying you shouldn't have a brand split, but the dual branded two-in-a-month pay-per-view model. Or to do in, as many as they're doing. Exactly, yeah. I, I, I just think it, it's it's a completely different economic scenario. And so there's a big difference there. And so, yeah, it's helping on pay-per-view, but, you know, that's... It's probably helping on live events, too. And I know we heard that the Philadelphia show uh, with the John Prison match had, had trouble selling out, but at least it had trouble selling out as opposed to, like, I mean, I think even most Raws probably don't sell out, and that's their number two type of event besides pay-per-view. So at least they're getting to run a couple, you know, maybe three to five extra pay-per-view events that they probably charge higher ticket prices for and they get a bigger audience for at the live event. So before I go into all the network kind of things, uh, do you want to play the clip all about the network levers? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, it, it's always going to be the, the same levers. It's the content, um, both new content that we're creating as well as the excitement around the, the core storylines and Raw and SmackDown that then drives to our paper, pay-per-view special. So that's always going to be big, too. We're going to keep investing in the, the core features um, uh, of the product uh, and make it more fun to use and easier to use. And then third, we get smarter about communicating to, to our subscribers, current, inactive, as well as new potential subscribers. And so we'll keep working on that. Those are the main levers. We've got a lot of ideas. Uh, but as I mentioned before, I think the dance question, we don't really worry about, um, you know, one quarter's number. It's, it's really more about driving consistent growth over the long term. And He basically said there's three big points that they look at to consider what's going to drive network subscriber growth. And he said, number one, content, which consists of storylines and pay-per-views. Uh, number two, they want to make the network just more fun and easier to use for their subscribers. And then, then number three, all of this, you know, very analytical, customized marketing that they can, you know, direct. If you're a big Sting fan, they can hit you with a blast email and so forth. Yeah, I've been getting even more of those lately of, yeah. you know, Jinder sent a, me any, one about Oh, did Jinder person. send you an email? Yeah, he did. Yeah, He wanted me to make sure I knew that he was going to be defending his title in the cage. I'm going to have to check my spam folder here. I wish I would get one from the great Cully that oh. I would treasure. Yeah, well, well, now you can't spoil the surprise, but yeah. now I can send you an email. Now we can, yeah. Uh, we, we averaged 1.634 million paid subs this quarter. So that was a very good number in the sense that uh, it was up 144,000 in paid subs. That's 114,000 domestic and 30,000 international from the first quarter of 2017. So that drove more revenue. Now, what was not so great was the fact that they churned off 604,000 people and only had 598,000 gross additions. So essentially, they ended up 
with um, a paid number of 1.568 million subs as of June 30th, which is 1.158 million domestic and 410,000 international. I had thrown down some predictions, and essentially the domestic numbers ended up being higher than I thought, and the international ended up being lower than I thought. Uh, so that was interesting to me, because what this really said to me is that you had a lot of people who were coming in as freebies, and you kept them better than you kept them a year ago, but at the same time, you lost them by the end of the quarter. So you didn't get this giant downstream you know, halo effect where these people were sticking around for nine months, but instead it appeared more like you kept them for the 45, 60-day period, but then you lost them by June 30th. And, of course, George refuses to go into the details about, you know, how long is the average person staying subscribed and how is it really working. But he was adamant, we are going to have the promotional period. It's a great tool for us. We're going to continue to use it. And all these churns, by the way, aren't all necessarily uh, free subscriptions, right? Like, that's that's not exactly what we're looking at, right? We're looking at – this could have been anybody who, who, who canceled or who churned out, right? Yep, yep. And yeah. – and, Ultimately, it, this means versus, you know, where we were uh, as of the end of March. I think we're down seven thousand domestic paid, and we're up a thousand international paid. Um, it, it's interesting to me sometimes when you're seeing some of the growth where it's coming evenly from the U.S. and from international when there's such different population sizes in terms of both actual population sizes and also existing subscriber base. So um, obviously there's very few other places in the world left to roll out the WWE network. Um, we're pretty much rolled out. You know, there's there's China, there's uh, China, <laughs> Mars, yeah. the moon. Uh, North, North Korea, maybe. North Korea, yeah. And it said the outlook uh, for Q3 was 1.54 million average paid plus or minus 2%. So yeah. uh, they, they expect to go from, again, they're at 1.634 million average paid for this quarter. Of course it's going down. It's uh, going down by almost 100,000 uh, for next quarter. It's what we expect, which is, is the long tail is we boosted out the beginning of the year. We try to get ourselves to a slightly higher number than we were a year ago. And then at 2 to 4% above where we were a year ago, then we just try to hold on to that for the rest of the year. And on Wrestling Observer Live, Brian asked me, you know, are we ever going to get $3 million? And I basically said, not under the current content and pricing and tiering. You know, if you change things around, if you throw WrestleMania tickets into the mix, if you add a free tier, if you add a super-duper tier, you know, that could maybe change your numbers. But as it stands today, no, I, I don't see it going much beyond kind of a $2 million wall. Or if you hire a new booker and uh, set the business on fire, maybe. Um, <laughs> do you, do, so WrestleMania, the day after WrestleMania, we, there were 1.66 million uh, paid subscribers. Do you think WrestleMania 34 they're going to beat that number? 1.66 million. Are we at a set, steady state here? No, no. I think they're going to still go up next year. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think they still have. I feel know, like we're getting close though. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the difference though is that you know their analytics is improving a little bit. And their penetration in some of these other marketplaces is improving. And, and you put the right stars and the right attraction together, you can make something happen. Um, I, it, it's always going to be a function of if the television is good and hot. And, you know, for this year, we're seeing it a little bit stronger than it was a year ago. 
in terms of of value of the content uh for smackdown for instance they re-energized that a lot so you know there's always a chance that if you had a a really good smackdown versus raw feud or you did a you know cena versus undertaker type match you could maybe get you know more people but i I don't know if it's sustainable charlotte versus ronda rousey yeah or even you know brock versus the right person you know maybe bring in another outside bring in in john jones and (laughs) scoop that right up from ufc They'll, okay. probably, they'll, they'll probably both test positive for clomiphene beforehand anyway, though. Um, no specifics coming out here about the network in terms of UK launch. Uh, it was the usual praise for 205 Live, which I always feel like they do just to wrangle uh, 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 Dave Meltzer's uh, feathers. Uh, no admission that they're doing big cost-cutting. No discussion about canceling Talking Smack or the Renee Young show. Uh, just lots of hype for the May Young tournament. So in some ways... You know, it's funny where they'll say, oh, we don't really care about the one quarter number. But on the flip side, their finances will tank if they have a really bad quarter. If they showed a quarter where they went from 1.5 down to 1.2 million, their stock would tank. So it's gibberish for them to pretend like it doesn't matter. And especially doesn't matter during the WrestleMania quarter. I think the challenge is the people don't know how to interpret it. Well, I think their their defense is that – you need to look at year-over-year progress and, and, and not look at quarter-to-quarter. Quarter. Although, if, if like you said, if it did jump down to 1.2, that would affect the future projections of, of the network, of, of what it's going to do year-over-year. But it, I don't I don't think you should look at look – at, obviously, you shouldn't look at this quarter and compare it to last quarter or look, compare it to what it did at WrestleMania. It is a year-over-year thing, and that's what they always say. And I think there's – I think that is how you should look at it. In a sense, I, I guess I'm just I, – I think sometimes if you get yourself into the mentality that this business only has this certain seasonality to it, it becomes such a self-fulfilling prophecy that you risk basically telling people it doesn't matter from May until December. And that's always dangerous to me when you start doing that. And I'm not saying, hey, you should be doing more Rock Comes Back in November and, and – teams up with John Cena or the invasion pay-per-view should be a one and done in the middle of the summer. But there's a risk we have by always perpetuating the myth that every business should only have a certain seasonality. And this is, this is the segment we've given to these people. Do you want to play the, um, what they said about the UK? Uh, because I think that's been fascinating where that's going to be one of the great examples, kind of like a, uh, my, the UK, uh, just like the UK TV deal, or actually the UK uh, network deal was always about to happen but never did, just like China's always about to happen but never did. This uh, weekly UK tournament turning into an actual weekly show has uh, continues to be kind of just at fingertip length but not being able to find it. Um, so for the UK brands, we'll save them all, uh, and we'll take it as it goes. You know, We're pretty good at trying things, learning from them, and then kind of building them out organically, but we're excited. We have a big fan base in the UK. They've shown an appetite. Uh, for uh, uh, local talent, so um, we'll, as, as Vince mentioned, we're going to continue to play around with that and build on it. Mm-hmm. What, they're, what they're, they're pretty good at trying things. Yeah, and what, <laughs> what fascinates <laughs> it, it, me is that that idea to say, well, what could this turn into? So, if you say right now we have what is it, four hundred thousand some uh, international subscribers, probably a quarter of that is the UK, at least maybe more 150,000 or more people and 
how much penetration is left to be done there? You know, can you get another 50,000 subs just by running a UK specific territory? And what's the, the cost proposition of that? Because every other nation of the world is probably less likely to be able to get that kind of return. So the UK is your best marketplace for that. Uh, you know, running a, a French territory, France might be as big, bigger, but I doubt you'll be able to get that kind of ROI. Uh, so unless it's China, I don't really see another kind of uh, country-specific territory you could run that would have such a good return. Maybe Mexico would be about the only other one. Yeah. So you think this WUK weekly show is never happening? No, no. I just mean in terms of – we talk about what levers are left to pull in the WWE network toolbox. I think this is an interesting one because done right, I think you could actually use it to really spur a lot of international viewers and get some new subscribers. And just like we're talking about, maybe that's a good way to kind of prop up the numbers during Q3 and Q4 uh, when you need to actually continue to throw growth and, you know, carry those people through to the next year. So do you think they're going to do it then, the, the weekly show? I think if the cost can stay where it needs to be and the brains can be where they need to be. You know, I think they, they spread themselves thin a lot of times with this stuff because they have, you know, think about all the things they put under Paul Levesque and asked yeah. him to kind of run and think about. I worry about that idea. And so, you know, that's one of the things when they say, hey, it's it's the May Young Classic. Hey, it's all Paul Levesque. I bet that's true. But I bet a lot of it also came from the fact that Sarah, Sarah Del Rey is down there doing a lot to kind of grease the wheels and make it happen. And so just having those kind of people that you can trust to go do that, you know, is it going to be a regal or who it is that you really have to apply? Because I don't think you can run territories like that and those ideas from afar in a Vince McMahon-esque model. Yeah, because well, that answer didn't sound like – George Barrios' answer didn't sound like they have any immediate plans to do it. I, the sense, sense I got from it was that maybe they're going to do these UK specials like they did a little while ago and do, do those a handful of times per year. Because I guess they, they had to have hired Jim Ross for something. Uh, and and that, that that will probably be it for now. In terms of uh, TV ratings, as always, uh, WWE Raw was down 9% in the national ratings. It was a 2.53, dropping to a 2.3. SmackDown was up 12%, a 1.72, growing to a 1.92. They had, of course, the benefit of going live and becoming you know that split-blended show in July of 2016. So we're still seeing kind of that uh, apples-to-oranges comparison period. Uh, USA Network was up 2% from a 1.16 to a 1.18. And the top 25 cable networks dropped 4% from a 0.71 to a 0.68. So Raw basically was the laggard in all this, dropping 9%. Of course, they have the highest number of all four things I mentioned here, but they also dropped the most at, at that 9% on the national ratings. And if you're wondering, hey, Chris, what is national ratings? Well, that is an average of the U.S. viewing <laughs> audience households for each minute of a program or day part expressed as a percentage of the total U.S. television households. And then... Some people might be surprised to hear that the number of U.S. television households actually went up in 2017, 118 million, versus uh, 2016 at 116 million. That's a 2% increase. And again, I don't know if a household in this definition is just people that can receive the channel or if it's yeah. just people who are – it says total U.S. households, so I'm going to guess no, that it's actually just total just households. households with, with a TV in it, whether or not they have an, an MVPD subscription or not. Exactly. So 
Um, it, it, it's an interesting thing because it, it says basically that cable dropped 4%, raw dropped 12%, and USA Network actually, you know, thank Mr. Chrisley, I guess, going up 2%. I, I look at this stuff, I wonder. I mean, obviously, the W is reporting this themselves, so if if it was wrong in their favor, you know, you don't think that that's a mistake that they would make or this isn't something that they would embellish about. But my point is, I, you, you say up 2%, but when I look at the ratings for uh, the series other than Raw on SmackDown on the USA Network, they're all down like by double digits. At least some of them are down like 40 50% from what they did the year prior. And that's kind of what we're looking at here, right, is this quarter versus the quarter, the same quarter last year. And uh, they say the USA Network is, is actually up 2%. Uh, I, I'm curious what the data is that makes up that average. It's a great question. Could be anything from, you know, Law and Order repeats at noon on Tuesdays to, um, you know. I believe they specify this is all uh, primetime stuff, right? It doesn't ever say that. It doesn't say primetime, at least in the, the definition I looked at, but it's possible somewhere else it said that. Um, but that that's exactly the point, is it comes from Nielsen, so they're taking off, off some Nielsen report, but uh, I have no idea how exactly it's done. And I used to work very closely with Nielsen in a grocery store capacity. Uh, because they also do a lot of the scanning for, you know, when you, when grocery stores, what you scan, what you buy, Nielsen buys that data really? and then tries to do stuff with it. And I will say, you can ask them some really great questions and they have enormous data sources to go and answer them, but they're incredibly opaque about their answers. And depending on which variables you choose to include or exclude, you'll get very different answers sometimes. So just like in any other uh, analyst business, you can, you can make the numbers say a lot. But I have a feeling they're asking for the same methodology quarter after quarter. I, I applaud WWE for actually reporting this yeah, and consistently. Page one, page one on their KPIs. Of course, it started off looking better than it, it has been in the last period here. And I, don't, so, I don't know if it did. I, they only started doing this, I think, beginning of 2016. I remember like they put TV ratings right at the front here. And they've been, you know, 2016, things were, were bad already. I feel like Q1, though, it was good. I feel like the first time they did this, it looked good. It showed, like, Raw was declining slower than everybody else. And so it was, like, a nice bragging point. And I almost wonder now if it's, you know, the sort of thing that, you know, Vince opens it up and on page one, there it is staring <laughs> him in the face. Which is ironic since, of course, uh, at the Cannes interview that, that uh, Paul Levesque did, he, he talked all about how April viewership was much better than last year and ratings were up. And so I think it's just kind of a, a funny little thing to look at. To, because when, of SmackDown. When, yeah, exactly. That it's a, a much more broader story. Bigger story tells a very different story. Um, Michelle Wilson bragged a lot about how the WWE's PG rating makes it more attractive for sponsors. Sponsorship. Sponsors was their favorite word this time. Uh, Laura Martin, uh, my, my, my gal from Needham. Uh, in fact, even called them out on it and just said, don't you mean advertisers? Like, why are you calling them sponsors? And she's like, yeah, it's just verbiage. That sounds she, she said it's interchangeable. Yeah. But uh, they, they bragged that basically being PG meant that they could get the Nestle's of the world and the KFC's of the world and the crickets of the world because all the good programming right now is TV 14 and TVMA. And so the, the Better Call Saul's and the Walking Dead's and the... You know, all these other shows are so gory and gritty, and, and advertisers are a little bit worried about what she referred to as brand safety at one point. Um, about kidding. Now, now, I don't watch TV <laughs> other than other than whatever comes to me through the internet. Uh, but do things like Walking Dead and and other I don't know hot cable shows? Do they have? Do they not have 
the blue chip sponsors like like the Nestle's and the KFC's and all all that? I think if anything, they're getting the higher end sponsors because they they attract such an older demographic. Oftentimes, you see a lot more of the car commercials and the luxury right. brands and what's not. So I don't know if it's always a fair comparison. Uh, I I always think back to there used to be Raws and there used to be this thing. It was called like Tommy the Tank, and it was like a video game, and it just was. It was just rough. <laughs> I just remember thinking, watching it, and being like, the day that I see a car commercial on WWE will be the day I die. And since then, they've really improved the brands and the, the, the scope of all the different people that advertise with them. We've got jewelry but, commercials and stuff now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. K's jeweler. K's, and then, of course, they're getting a lot of anti-smoking commercials, at least where I am, and uh, whatnot. So th- but, there's but off- if other shows like um, Walking Dead, which is very violent or whatever, right? If, if those shows are getting even more prestigious sponsors uh, versus WWE, well, then it, the, like, the common denominator there isn't violence. I mean, you know, like the thing that's that's scaring the sponsors off doesn't sound like it's violence then, just, or at least not violence alone. No, and, and even Laura herself, I'm sorry, Michelle herself admitted that, it quote, the marketplace has not fully understood this, as she put it. And, of course, there's always this argument about, you know, what makes wrestling PG when you have people attacking each other and, you know, violence and and ambulance flipping and blood and, you know, some pretty uh, uh, intense segments here. What makes it PG? But then again, is football PG? So, you know, as long as we have uh, uh, CTE love going on one side, why not the other, I guess? I Um, I guess I kind of feel like the the difference then that I'm trying to get at between, like, talk. The Walking Dead and WWE, they're both quite violent. In fact, Walking Dead is probably more violent than, than WWE. At least in WWE, you don't have people, I don't know, shooting each other and, and whatever. And, like, they won't even show blood in, in WWE. So maybe the difference is just, you know, just the quality of, of the content or maybe in, in, in wrestling terms, the quality of the booking just isn't as good. And, and they do things that are juvenile and, you know, they do toilet humor or whatever. And maybe that's and their reputation of being that, and that's why they have a different situation when it comes to advertisers. And perception, perception reigns supreme, um, because you know we've oh. seen promotions that have done good booking that get no credit. You know, TNA has had segments where they've done well. Lucha Underground has things that they do well, and they still get very little perception. Right, and um, and I th- and I think those those promotions are hindered by. They're just not the major league promotion, and I think WWE's in a, in a position where they they are perceived as a major league promotion. They are the, the promotion that has the most great talent in the world, and so th- I think I don't know. I, I mean, it's something we can get into if we talk about the YouTube thing. But I, I do wonder to what extent what extent does booking really matter to the bottom line? And that's a great point because one thing that you notice when you study the financials of WWE right now, and when people ask me, is the WWE Network a good idea? They have found ways to smooth out their revenue streams, unlike most companies ever have in their lifetime, because they have so much more guaranteed revenue from television, and then they have so much more momentum revenue from their network, such that they they have a base of people that are going to continue to subscribe month over month over month, because it's an easy digital subscription, and it's not a choice-driven pay-per-view system. And so you're not going to have that giant knockoff like you did in 2001, where people just kind of wander away from the product and go find something else to watch UFC or whatnot, compared to today, where you do have attrition, but it, it's it's more like a slow bleed than it is about a, a, a car accident, you know, a dramatic event. Um, yeah. and, and I would say in 2001, 
the the knockoff that they had was more more of a cooling down after they had become really hot. And I don't I, true, I don't, I don't but think but you any... could argue you could argue that they lost the ability to uh, translate all those WCW viewers into WWE viewers. That those people, for the yeah. most part, there's a huge audience that just basically gave up and left rather than invest in this slightly different product. I shouldn't even say slightly different product, different product. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, what what um, will be interesting to me is Burials kept saying that he still considers the monetization of content as the primary way to grow revenue, which might sound like, you know, slang to someone. But if you think about it, that's a big statement because he's saying it's not live events. It's not merchandising. It's not licensing. It's not... Uh, films. <laughs> it's not even social media. It's the monetization of the content. And when he said that, of course, I'm sure in his mind, he's including um, some digital media under that in terms of, you know, get money from YouTube to put my clip on that. But at the same time, I think it's interesting because it's a way of saying we think the most valuable thing we have is Raw and SmackDown, in a sense, and to a much lesser degree, our library. And that's where we're going to make the most money in the future here. And so... Uh, as a company, it says we don't need to double our staff. We don't need to run five territories. We don't need to be all over the world and run 900 events a year. We're better off going around and negotiating better TV deals. And so that says a lot about where I think their priorities are for the next three years. Yeah, and it, uh, TV revenue already is their their biggest revenue stream. It's like 30, about a third of their business. A third of the revenue is coming from TV already. And, and not only that, it's also 48% of their OBITA. I'm sorry, 48% OBITA margin. So they get almost half the money they make on TV goes to profit, whereas the network only 17% goes to uh, profit. And that's the number I always want to remind people of because that means even if you replaced 100% of your TV revenue with 100% of your network revenue, WWE would be in worse shape by quite a lot. And so that's why you can't get away with just replacing those viewers you would actually need a a multiple number of those viewers today on your network to make that revenue proposition even work for you from a profit segment at least the way they're structured today as a unit measurement so the the question everybody wants to know is is raw or smackdown going on the network uh, in 2019 and and brandon ross made a new version of that this week when he said is raw or smackdown going on the network in 2019 or is facebook going to air Raw or SmackDown. Maybe a digital player will do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have some con- Do you have some audio about that? Larger rights renewals for Raw and SmackDown could have the most material impact on your growth. And the video uh, distribution landscape is changing pretty rapidly. Do you see the possibility of moving rights off of television onto a digital platform such as a Facebook whether exclusively or non-exclusively, especially since you guys do so well on uh, on digital and social. And when you take a look at options, uh, do I think that's how we think about it, any platform, whether it's paid TV, our owned and operated, or a, or a third-party digital platform. Um, obviously, Vince has said it many times, uh, five, six, probably seven years ago, we thought it was really important for all the reasons I just mentioned to make sure we staked out both the social digital uh, landscape position as well as direct-to-consumer. And we've done that, so now we have options. Uh, do I think a digital player uh, will become more realistic to kind of step up into, into the level of rights fees that we've seen from traditional players? I think eventually, couldn't tell you if that's 
tomorrow or if it's five years from now, but eventually, and certainly over the last two years, we've seen um, kind of a steady progression towards kind of what you're describing. But from our end, the reason we've invested so much in having a position on these platforms is to take advantage of that eventuality. Yeah, so from our, so it's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, did we see that happening? Absolutely. So if you're one of those fans out there who hates it when Michael Cole tells you to get in on the conversation on Twitter, uh, what George Barrios is saying there is that you know the, the reason why they've invested all, all this time and all this you know, money into big on social media is because someday they anticipate some sort of rights uh, fees from maybe somebody like Facebook or YouTube or who knows. Is one of the many things that they're doing for sure, and I. I thought it was funny because Brian Alvarez even laughed when I told him this story today because he's like, you know, it's rare that Berrios gives you specificity, but here he more or less says, we think it's more like five years off rather than two years off for the time that one of these big players is going to put a bid in that's going to be comparable to what a a traditional media company is going to be putting down for the rights. And I think Berrios has gotten better about not being so i think maybe right after the network came out then that's about the time that i started following stuff but like right after the network came out maybe it was just a, and the and the tv rights were disappointing maybe there was you know maybe there's more uncertainty and he had more to be afraid of as far as what he was going to say but i think he's gotten more clear i mean i haven't made any various bingos bingo jokes in a while i haven't even updated the the bingo scorecard because he hasn't really been give, giving us an, enough nonsense neologisms to to fill it up with extraordinary i think would be my favorite one from this show where i felt like that was the verbal tick kind of going around the room from person to person but i agree with you there that uh i think he's come to a new realization of what the network is Mm -hmm. i was saying this to someone else today about how you know this started as this is the netflix of wrestling right and we're going to do three to four million people and all we have to do is get one percent of the audience that's out there that has an affinity for us and what's going to be huge and then it's morphed into this is the core of the core and these are our hardcore fans and it's a different view and in his mind he finally i think found a place in his tiering system for where social media and where digital media lives where you have television and then you have social and or actually you have you have social media at the 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 lowest tier being that's the short clips then you have television and then you have the the network kind so, of at the top tier so would you say like they're so they're not so much looking to get people subscribed to the network who are these mainstream fans right it's more about super serving the hardcore fans would you would you agree with that is that like that's their their view has changed on, on what the network is is supposed to do that that's my impression. I mean, I think as we saw kind of the the uh, merry-go-round of different leaders of the WWE network, there was different messaging coming out at different times. But I think that's where they've landed now, is that so, the the network is a slow-growing mover of uh, perpetual revenue from hardcore fans. So and, so here's here's my radical agenda then. So if if what they should be doing is making that hardcore fan base even bigger. Isn't their creative direction at odds with that in terms of you got this booker who only seems to care about the moments and only cares about making moments really big and special and doesn't care so much about long term storylines so that I feel and I think a lot of people feel that to be a fan of WB, the more loyal, loyal you are, the more punished you are. And it's not like watching other TV shows where the more loyal you are, the more attention you pay to the details of the show, the more you get rewarded. That's not what happens in WWE. And if you're, and if your business is is based around in large part this 
subscription, you know, video on demand service that's supposed to be directed now at hardcore fans. I think it would behoove you to have a, a creative direction that, you know, catered to that or fit that. What's fascinating to me is the idea that perhaps there's a bifurcation in that hardcore fan base, though, where to me, the people that can sit and watch Raw for three hours a week are so much more hardcore than me spending $10 a month to subscribe to the network, because that's such a larger time investment to me than even just checking out the pay-per-views occasionally and having access to the library and knowing that I can get on demand what I want. I'm the convenience WWE Network subscriber. I like the convenience of being able to pull up what I want when I want it versus, you know, being a hardcore fan that I feel like I have to have it, you know? And so it's funny. I don't know if that's a demographic thing. I don't know if that's just an, a, uh, a maturity thing or what it is. But it's an interesting thing where we, we get to the point where you describe, you know, wouldn't it be great to have longer, long-term plans? And all I can think about is, wouldn't it be great if there was that show with Vince McMahon in a, a leather chair with his bottle of scotch? And he's just telling stories. Because that, that's the stuff that, you know, interests me. And so it, yeah. it's fascinating to me that, you know, they, they I think they've they've come up with this term to kind of describe the cohort of the WWE Network people as the core of the core and the super fans. But I really think that there might be these interesting subgroups among them where it, there is kind of the difference between the super fan and then also the convenient fan who is just used to paying for digital services. And it likes the convenience of knowing that they have Hulu subscriptions that they can just watch at their fingertips whenever they want, but they don't subscribe to it because there's a certain Hulu show they want much in the same way. You don't subscribe because there's a certain Netflix show you want versus even HBO, where sometimes you do turn it on and turn it off based on whether game of Thrones is new or not. Mm -hmm. I, I would think you, you would want both though. I mean, I understand there's oh, sure, all, sure. All, all different kinds of hardcore fans that are all who have all different sorts of preferences and reasons why they would or wouldn't subscribe um, what, what i would say is that to me this goes back to being draft i've probably given this example before but the price inelasticity of draft which is a a fabric softener for people that have like newborns is very inelastic you can price it high people will buy it but you get very few conversions from tide People don't say, oh, I'm going to get draft because it's on sale today. The only people that do that are people already buying draft. And so by pricing your product at $9.99, I think that you kind of annihilate the idea of being a hardcore thing because you're trying to make it applicable to everyone while only appealing to some. And if you're going to do that, it's better to find a happy middle ground. The problem is that they've boxed themselves in such a corner now because they're out of international markets to expand into. They're out of places that they can offer free trials to for a big pay-per-view like WrestleMania. And they're out of kind of other gimmicks to throw at it in terms of library programming or in terms of, of new programming or in regional programming. So at this point, it's tough to argue why you should have to pay $15 or $20 because they've already devalued their product. The only way you can do it is if you completely change the tiering system and some of the other content opportunities and monetization or tickets or some other way that they're doing a direct-to-consumer model. Yeah, I, th I think at this point, when, when you've been $9.99 for, we're on our, what, third year of the WWE Network, to, to raise the price without, without tiering or without adding some new stuff that wasn't there before uh, would, would be met with a lot of fourth year. That's no well about about three and a half about three and a half yeah yeah but um, um but I, I don't so, think they can they can raise the price without a lot of customer upheaval. 
Yeah, I think I think the problem was it, from a billing standpoint, it does create a lot of problems. And, and it's funny because I've been finding all these bizarre, you know, I found all these legal contract stuff going back to when they were doing the contracts with the six month commitment. And it was rather comical reading, you know, kind of through their thoughts on why this was such a great model at the time. One thing they mentioned, uh, which was interesting, is they mentioned that they did buy a new production facility in Stanford uh, and that they're going to be doing a lot more. And that's going to cause a lot of what they call CapEx, which is just facilities, you know, capital expenditure type money over the next 12 to 18 months. We're going to be seeing that. Uh, and they're spending a little bit of that $200 million in cash that they they bought in December in convertible senior notes that I've talked about before um, on this this building and, and the investment there. But it will be interesting to see if if that relates to anything because they, they people were asking them, Oh, does that mean you're going to do a lot more localization because they have a new Hindi program that's really popular and some other middle Eastern stuff that they've been doing. And they did went for one in Mexico as well. But um, no, that will be interesting to see what they're doing with it. Uh, they did talk about the India, China is a future story as always uh, this time. Of course, they did not want to get into specifics. Can we play that clip? George, take it away. Yeah, we're not going to get into individual countries, you know, and I've always said China is in early days for us. I always contrast it to India, which obviously is not only a great country in terms of economics for us, but in terms of consumption. We've been there over 20 years. China, we're right around year 9 or 10, so it's at a a different place. Having said that, it's moved from kind of an early developing market for us to one that your, you referenced the PPTV agreement was kind of a, a, a little bit of a step change for us uh, in terms of both distribution and economics. So we're really excited there. We're putting more resources on the ground there. We think there's a long-term play for us uh, in China. Your question about the event is something operationally we're always struggling with, Curry. Um, you know, there's only, unfortunately, we're working, we have a special project to increase the number of days in the year, but it hasn't gotten off the ground. We're still at 365. <laughs> Uh, so we what we always have to make trade offs about where we're playing and and it's it's the blessing and the curse we're pretty uh popular on every country on earth so uh it, it's uh, we have to make choices and so that's just one of a reflection of some of the choices yeah so so the problem is they're just too popular everywhere all over the world that's why they only run one show in china well, I love the idea, too, that they say we're not going to get into specifics by country because it's like you just talked about the UK. You get into you go into depth about India all the time, whatever the hot market is. You just don't want to admit the fact that you can't that your China is the future story is beginning to fade a little bit. And um, I'm always amused by their timelines in terms of how many years they've been in, quote unquote, this country or that country, because it. It changes with the management team. I'll put it that way. Where even like they were talking about the um, the recent deal in in sub-Saharan Africa, where ETV decided to no longer uh, renew the subscription basis with um, WWE and it's going to SuperSport. And depending on who you talk to, you're very different stories about whether or not that was ETV's choice or whether that was WWE's choice. Because WWE is playing it up as, oh, we're getting into these new markets and doing this and that. But what they're leaving out is the fact that they were with Supersport from all through the 90s and then switched over to ETV. And now they're back at Supersport. And ETV basically was doing a cost-cutting measure, um, as far as we can tell, is basically saying we don't want to pay these inflated fees. We think we can do better on spending it on this other programming. Uh, we want Scandal, specifically, they mentioned. Um, 
And uh, so Super Sports picking it up. And I'm sure it's a good deal for them. But even the years of what the deal is, they're like, oh, we've been with them since 2001. Well, I talked to somebody else and they're like, no, we started in 99. And the difference is management regimes change. And so they only remember what they know when they started. So it's funny that George is like, we've been there for nine years because I bet you that lines up exactly with when George started versus I think they've been actually having some deals in China since the early 2000s. And it's just that George wasn't around for those deals. So, of course, he doesn't want to mention those. So yeah. I'm always amused by that, too, that, that you know, everyone's timing here. Vince has a notoriously bad memory, so it's not like I expect him to be the one calling out which distribution deal was in place when. Um, and if one thing that they've run through over the years here is that Ed Wells, who's now kind of leading international, it's been a diminished position versus what it had been in kind of years prior. And now it's kind of under George. So uh, I'm not surprised to see Berrios-esque narratives. But I would always challenge investors or people, historians, to uh, go back and look up some of those press releases. They might be surprised at some of the distance and the, the, the length of time that they might see with some of these deals. And then the article that you shared with me about the uh, the South Africa deal. So ETV was a was over the air, was an over the air station. And this super sport that they're moving to is pay TV. Um, right. And they've been talking about how big their viewership was in South Africa. That was kind of like one of those left field statistics that showed up at the business partner summit. But what I got in this article like, is raw at 2.66 million SmackDown at 2.05 million. I mean, that's less yeah. than, uh, that's at least the, the raw audience on USA network is like 3 million. Yeah. And I think at one point they said something like 6 million on the business partner summit or some like, like, ridiculous like did, number. Didn't they say like South Africa is their biggest viewership country? It was something bizarre where it was between them and India, and it was one of those where we all said, huh? I, I've never heard you talk about South Africa since the days of the Truth Commission. Like, what are you talking about? But uh, it, it was just interesting to me where, obviously, I think you always need to have a BS filter because every deal is the best deal you can have because you have to sell it that way because otherwise it makes you look weak to the marketplace. But from an independent viewer standpoint, I think it is important sometimes to challenge these things. And, you know, we're lucky to have people. Um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, when you look at the, like Squared Circle newsletter, people like that who have come out of the, you know, who are fans in other countries who, who oftentimes, you know, will give you a viewpoint of what is it like in their home country. And it's radically different than what you're reading as a business narrative. Yeah. And I guess in, in South Africa, even the, in that article, it said ratings had declined. Just as they have declined in, uh, in the U.S., um, the, the one sentence I really enjoyed is that rings have dimmed since the mega slam dunk days of John Cena. <laughs> did, did you did you see that in there? I did. I did. Yeah. I, I I think the. Uh, I didn't. I didn't realize, and I, maybe that's what we should just call a boom period for now. That should be the new nomenclature for for the boom period. The mega slam dunk days. When when were those? When, when what's day one and when was the last day? I need I need a timeline. Well, remember when, uh, what is it, the reality era got deemed because it was it Rolling Stone or the Masked Man or somebody came up with their phrase, and now you'll see that sometimes in yeah, uh, I uh, think Triple H endorsed that somewhere. Exactly. So, you know, Mega Slam Dunk uh, will be WrestleNomics' new uh, mm -hmm. uh, phrase, and we'll have to give credit to that, that blogger. Bring back um, the Mega Slam Dunk days. Come on. <laughs> Sick of this PG. Uh, live event data, uh, they were slightly up. On North American and again North American numbers would include TV tapings um, I think when I looked at it for non TV tapings it looked like they were slightly down because uh, of course John Cena was missing for a lot of Q2 and so those Smackdown shows were not doing so hot 
Uh, but it says, with, including TV tapings, they were up 5,500 for 66 shows in uh, North America versus 5,462 shows last year, last quarter. And international live attendance was way down, though, uh, 6,300 per show versus 8,000 per show. The difference being, of course, they ran 26 shows, different marketplaces this time versus only 19 shows last year. So, and then, then uh, international numbers are, are very volatile just because they're always in different countries. Yeah, yeah. Comparing Singapore and the UK is is not always going to be the uh, a fair comparison. So um, I, I think net net it looks something like an eight percent net increase in fans at the show period. So that's good for them. Uh, do you want to walk us through some WrestleMania numbers? We, we in our previous show we said this was going to be the one piece of information you could be guaranteed to get out of this uh, report. Yeah. So we got in, in the KPIs that you're talking about. They give us the average attendance for the quarter with WrestleMania and the average attendance without WrestleMania. And in doing so, they unwittingly reveal a range of the actual paid attendance for WrestleMania itself. So as we talked about before, we've, we've got a spreadsheet going all the way back to 2008, where WrestleMania was also in Orlando, as it was this year, uh, of what, what are the actual, based on these numbers that they, that they put out, they published themselves, based on these numbers, what, what was the actual paid attendance for WrestleMania? And this year, according to what they just published this morning, uh, the the range is the median is about sixty four thousand nine hundred, so and the the low end of that range is about fifty eight hundred and the high end is about seventy one hundred. Um, seventy one thousand. Sorry, sorry. Seventy one thousand. Let's well, put it with zero zeros matters we discussed earlier. <laughs> Yeah, so somewhere between 58,500 people and 71,500. Of course, they're announcing somewhere around 75,000 uh, for the show. Um, they, which... they announced 75,245. The yeah, New Day so... announced it themselves. Yeah. So, again, difference between paid attendance and non-paid attendance is a little bit of that, but a lot of that is just uh, so puffery. Prob- probably like 64,000 people. I kind of trust the median, so that's like 10,000 yeah. extra. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, that 10,000 number has been pretty, pretty standard for the last couple of years here where they've been adding 10K if it's not a very specific artificial number that they have to try to hit, you know, breaking 100,000. Just, just looking at, at recent years, it's like 10 to 15,000, except for WrestleMania 32 last year, where obviously they, they announced 101,763 and they probably had 80,000 in the building. And we know that because we even got some numbers from the police, right? That's right. I emailed the Arlington Police Department and they said, hey, there's 80,000. They gave me some specific number, which the, the, the last three digits escaped me at the moment, but you know, 80,000 something. So uh, year to date, if we look at the profit on uh, live events, it's about 35% uh, compared to a year ago, it's about 38%. So it's actually gotten down a little bit um, as they've begun running more events. I imagine it's a little bit of a fixed cost thing where you're running more events that are these house shows on Monday nights and things of that nature with SmackDown that you weren't running before. And so it's a higher fixed cost and lower attendance at those events is part of it. Also, we know that WrestleMania had a lot less seating than last year. And so they specifically mentioned that, you know, almost $3.8 million less generated because lower ticket sales and venue merchandise sales. But they ran a whole 187 events year to date over the first six months of this year compared to only 159 last year. And that's not even including those 95 NXT events uh, that I talked about at the top of the show here. So, you know, we're on track for, you know, somewhere close to a 600 event year when you include all NXT 
which is an enormous amount of logistics. And if you think about it, that's more than the days in the year. Uh, of course, uh, not rivaling where we were in the late 80s, but uh, uh, blowing away pretty much anywhere anyone else out there with the exception, like Dave was talking about on uh, Wrestle Observer Radio this week, about whether or not if you added up all the spot shows in Mexico for like a CMLL, whether or not they do more live attendance in a year than, than WWE. And even then, I'm a little bit, I'm not sure if Dave's right on that one. Because uh, that's a lot of people in terms of the millions of people that WWE brings in in a year and comparing it to Mexico. But, of course, uh, impressive that Mexico can do that in just one country. And, of course, impressive that WWE can do it at such a higher cost. Yeah. What do you think the peak is for a number of events in the 80s? I'm positive. Uh, I ask you all these hard questions. I feel bad. Yeah. I I tried to calculate it before, and I think I got into over 1,000. Really? Uh, between like a thousand and twelve hundred, because you know, um, over like and three tours, right? Yeah, over in the professional wrestling legal archive and contracts uh, group, or as someone said, the group for research of <laughs> professional wrestling uh, legal exhibits, Grapple, which I liked as uh-huh. a name. Um, if you look in there, there's some great things on the alien files for different uh, foreigners who work for WWE, and one of them is for Dino Bravo. And if you dig into that file, it has some of his scheduled dates in the United States in, like, 1987. And it has this great little calendar where it just shows, like, uh, a week and then who is in every one of these three cities on the same day for, like, a week here. And then where all the different people are. So you see Bravo is in, in uh, you know, Albany this day and then he's out in California the next day and, and so forth. So it's this great little thing. But it, it just really strikes home to you that in like 87, 88, 89, um, probably 89 might even be the peak in terms of they were running, I think, over a thousand shows a year, possibly as high as maybe even 1100. Yeah, so uh, uh, just a, a horrific schedule for guys. And so when guys talk about, you know, I didn't go home for 60 days, I, I can sort of believe that, uh, especially in that world. And um, just when you're looking at, looking at these attendance figures, it just occurred to me that, you know, when we've been looking at house show averages for the year or for the quarter, it looks like attendance overall is declining a bit. And it looks like house show attendance kind of especially is declining and you kind of got to consider, well, now running house shows on Mondays where they weren't before. So that's 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 obviously affecting the average. Yeah, I actually made a spreadsheet one time where I split it up by day by brand just to kind of be able to say what are Mondays do versus other Mondays, what are Sundays versus Sundays and yeah. whatnot. And what I found was Mondays were a huge drag. You know, like it wasn't uncommon to have Mondays at 2,000 or 2,500, but I'm positive you're still making a profit at that number because the fixed cost of running a show on a Monday night is obviously going to be lower than a weekend. Plus, if the guys are nearby and already going to have to go to television somewhere else and they're already on the road, so you don't really have to fly them extra. And as independent contractors, it's up to them for their own transportation and hotel. That's right. So um, you don't have to pay them that much anyway. So without... Yeah. Yeah. So with the exception of those European tours uh, and those Mexico tours, uh, Monday shows are... are are lowly attended and uh, uh, tougher slogs for some of those guys, but still probably preferable to them. If they're going to be on Saturday, Sunday, uh, I imagine they'd still probably rather work Monday and then go to Tuesday TV than just totally have Mondays off and have nothing to do. Yeah, I just pulled up a spreadsheet that, that I did where I, where I calculated. This is, I think, just how shows 
Uh, and you look at it by, by day of the week, and Monday is a, a 24% negative hit. Exactly. So, I mean, if you expect that uh, uh, your average show period is maybe 4,000 for house shows, uh, 24% hit would be almost 1,000 people off. So, uh, right. And then it's my... so Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, like negative 2 or 4%, and then obviously Friday, Saturday, and even Thursday, apparently. There's only a few house shows on Thursdays, but the Friday, Saturday are the best days, of course. Yeah, they only usually run Thursday house shows if they're either international or they're about to go on an international jersey or journey or coming back from an international journey. Honestly, this is um, just looking at North American, but yeah. Yeah, so it's always possible if you're about to go to somewhere else, you might do like one show on a Thursday and then take off on the plane, you know, sort of thing. Um, one thing they talked about in the call here, and it was a uh, press release that came out earlier in the week, was about this uh, Lagardier Sports which is a, quote, best-in-class sports marketing agency that they're using to, to leverage for their global sponsorship business. And talking to somebody else in the industry, they kind of shared with me that this kind of a relationship oftentimes is almost on a commission. So they have to sell to make money. So it's it's very much in, in their interest to you know find places that want to spend some money on WWE. And uh, they're very good at what they do. And so it's it's probably best for WWE rather than trying to run as they used to many years ago, like 20 years ago, they used to actually try to have like an international business in UK and London that would try to sell ads and then one in like, you know, Tokyo and then one in, in, in the U S and whatnot. It's probably better just to team up with a sports global marketing type, uh, a business and have them try to work on trying to the, those kind of better ads. And we saw a little bit of that at the business partner summit about some of the different kind of promotions that go on and the, outside of the u.s where you know i remember new day was doing some kind of special german promotions that were very different and whatnot so i I think there's a lot of opportunity there and it's good for them and they said specifically they want to look at those places overseas that you know maybe they're selling a lot of they have a lot of eyeballs on those digital videos and they want to put some better advertising uh in front of that and related to that to see if they can uh, leverage more money so more power to them for doing it um they said it's everywhere except for china the uh, press release was very explicit about that so there must be something very unusual about that Chinese uh, brand of things in terms of why they, they wanted to make it clear that these people were not handling the Chinese advertising. Maybe because uh, like the new the one show that they are doing in China, for instance, I believe has a bunch of sponsors in China that are, are, are paying a lot of the fees for the show. And I guess, again, we might talk about this in a second with the YouTube stuff, but they've got you know, 75% of their social and digital activity is happening outside the U.S., but only 25% of the money, of the revenue that they get is from outside the U.S. So they've, they've got an inverse thing going on there, and they want to figure out how to monetize those markets somehow. Obviously. Um, so all in all, WWE Q2 results, uh, we didn't go deep, deep, deep into the numbers in the sense of rating down each segment and saying whether they're up or down, but we tried to break down some of the more interesting t- statistics that we can kind of wrap our head around in terms of attendance up or down or, or shows up or down or whatnot. Uh, the conference call, Vince didn't say anything during the actual uh, Q&A session of the call, at least as I recall. So that was Yeah, I don't think he did. He only uh, had his opening statement. I guess Laura Martin didn't even ask him a specific question. No, but she's fascinated by the fact that... Uh, These new she, revenue she, streams. 
she, you know, I will give Laura some credit here because she explored this topic and made me think a little bit more about it, where she really challenged them to say, are you guys getting flat rates to advertise or are you getting revenue shares when you're doing a Facebook video or a Snapchat or something? And they more or less admitted they're doing revenue share, which means more eyeballs usually equals more dollars, um, which is good or bad, right? So it's good for them in the sense that uh, they have lots of eyeballs. It's bad in the sense that uh, it's not like they're actually getting paid for their content. They're just, they're part of the, the, the content ecosystem like everyone else. Mm -hmm. um, let's break into some WWE, uh, just kind of Russell Nomics notes here uh, for some other things that have been going on with WWE. So, um, I think we hit most of the big things that were happening uh, with the actual um, WWE this year. You talked a little bit about your YouTube performers article. Uh, talk a little bit about the methodology and the timing of it, because I know I saw that as one of the first criticisms someone posted is saying basically, well, you pulled it from such and such dates, So, of course, so-and-so right. is not on this list. Oh, I haven't I haven't heard that, that criticism. I've heard a lot of criticisms about, about this, or at least... I, I, I didn't take it, or this is, this is at least my favorable way of looking at it. I didn't take it as like, oh, you did, you did a bad job here, but I took it as like people people feel very strongly about Roman Reigns, and Roman Reigns looks very good good in the, stu <laughs> in the study. Um, <laughs> um, so you, you read this article? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I read your yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but for for our listeners who, who might not have was, had a chance to go to fightful.com and and look up some of the exclusive If you uh, if you haven't read it. Yeah. Yeah, if you haven't read it, go to fightful.com and you can look up this uh, this article. Um so what I did was I went to WWE's YouTube page. We'll, we'll take you in depth here. Uh, just just exactly how the research is done. So I go to their YouTube page and <clears throat> You go to the videos section where they just show you all the videos in reverse chronological order. And I just keep, keep hitting load at the bottom of the page so that just more and more videos load. And uh, hit it going all the way back at least to – so the, the, the study looks at January 29th through July 10th. Um, I would have liked to get an even bigger data set, but it's we're kind of trying to collect this manually in terms of you just kind of keep hitting load over and over and over again. And, and inevitably – my browser gets slower and slower because I've got so much stuff in the window, and then eventually you accidentally click on something, you click off or something like that. But but this is something I would like to do recurringly so we can continue to look at this in another section of time in the future. But but I took all that data, and you were very helpful in putting this in an in a, in a Excel spreadsheet in a way that, that made sense and could be analyzed. Um, and what we found was uh, what, the the fairest way, and then I could come up with to compare wrestlers against each other, was to just make a, a count of okay, let's count up who had the most million view videos, and by by that measurement, Roman Reigns is number one, and I believe John Cena is just behind him, and uh, then you got Brock Lesnar and Braun Strowman uh, behind that, uh, and that is kind of an arbitrary benchmark 1 million views why one why 1 million views i guess just because it's a big round number and most of the views i think it's something like 15 percent of the view of the videos actually reach that benchmark um so you got roman reigns number one with 27 uh 1 million view videos and then again below that cena and then Strowman and then brock lesnar they had 23 and 
21 and 21, respectively. Uh, but if you look at 2 million, then Braun Strowman is in the lead, and you got Roman Reigns and John Cena tied behind him. But if you cut it down to just 500,000, who's got the most 500,000 view videos? Roman Reigns wins that contest, too. And you got Cena and actually Seth Rollins tied below that. Um, so what about if you do percentage of videos that they appear in? Uh, I didn't look at that specifically. I think I think that might be in the spreadsheet itself, but it is not in the article. Uh, I, I want to say Reigns is ahead on that, too. Okay. I know D- uh, Dave, I Dave approached would... it from that angle in the Observer. In terms of saying uh, Percentage. of the 50 videos this person is in, 47 of them get yeah. this money. I, I guess I considered looking at it that way, but then you're, you're probably going to run into a lot of wrestlers. I, so consider what the content is that's on W's YouTube channel. I think the most interesting or most valuable maybe part of it is are all the clips of Raw and SmackDown, and those are so. So was that? I, I think for me it was a shock when I discovered. Oh my gosh, all of this is on WWE's YouTube when I was going through this because I, I, I at one point I broke down all the words in there and right. did a couple pivots just so we could see you know what came up and I was surprised. Oh, Zach Ryder's got stuff on here and there's Spanish versions of clips and there's right. you know. A lot of content I was not ex- expecting that's on. And they have all, all the page. Fallout videos. Like they often do, you know, shoot promos with people after their matches or something on TV, and then they put them on on YouTube. They're never really on TV otherwise. So this just my concern. The reason why I didn't do a percentage in the article was because it, I'm not sure if it would really be fair to say you had a wrestler who had like a bunch of videos, and a lot of their videos were not of TV clips, but were of like, I don't know, little features that were not from TV. It wouldn't be fair that that person would, would be at a disadvantage to, to just measure by percent. So that's why I didn't do that. Yeah. I, I, I see where you're coming from on that. And I think any methodology is going to have certain flaws to it. You know, we could have done a Pareto curve where we said, okay, uh, how many people's videos do we need to get to 80% and then use that as kind of a, a tier one cutoff and created those, you know, things that way. I did one where I looked at, I did a really complex model where I did logarithmic time and had to do with how long has your video been out there and all sorts of things. But I, I can imagine there is a lot of uh, ridicule that ever comes, you know, like when I did my who who gets the top ratings and quarter hour study and people just refuse to accept you know the the names that end up on top it doesn't make sense to them uh i think roman reigns you know people are constantly asking dave hey what's the latest merchandise numbers can't i prove that baron corbin is outselling roman reigns and this and that um and a lot of times i'll say count the number of pieces of merchandise that are for sale and that's going to be a decent proxy for who's doing the most sales because they don't necessarily put out 15 t-shirts for one guy unless he has the weight to support it. Now, does that mean that somebody who only has two t-shirts couldn't be selling more? No, that doesn't mean that at all. But for the most part, it's self-perpetuating in the sense that the company chooses who they're going behind. And there's a lot of other people that have great analytics and great data that are using to kind of help make these decisions. And uh, the fact that Roman didn't lose his push when he got suspended for wellness violations should tell you a lot about where the company stands on him and specifically... Uh, getting into a program with The Undertaker, like you mentioned here, helps you a lot because The Undertaker does quite well in this kind of study. My improv uh, uh, best friend, a guy named Adam, just got married, and his wife uh, was interested in wrestling one day. And so Adam was like, I'll show you some videos. And so he was going through videos. And she gravitated to like two wrestlers, and one of them was The Undertaker, 
and the other one was Nikki Bella. And so <laughs> I was just like, it tells me a lot that even like, you know, a random fan will be like, I like this Undertaker guy and this Nikki Bella, she gets it done. Yeah. Well, n- number one for YouTube videos with or without yeah. John Cena. Um, but like other things I heard in response to this were, well, aren't all the video, aren't, aren't all the, isn't all the social media activity, aren't all the YouTube views, they're all just happening in, in India anyway, aren't they? And what? Well, I think they have, Debbie has said uh, India is their number one market for social media, but that doesn't mean necessarily that the majority uh, of, of YouTube views are happening in India. I would imagine it's a large portion, but probably not the majority. Absolutely. And um, it, I think it also speaks a little bit to Jacina, who was not around for all of this time period here. Of course, he was gone for almost the entire time period after WrestleMania. Uh, and it definitely hurt on the uh, house show draws. Uh, what did you find when you looked at that house show draw data about Cena? Right. Well, one other thing I, I heard that in response to this was, oh, you know, people saw Roman Reigns at the top of this list. They said, well, you know, yeah, he's at the top of this list, but you know, it's just YouTube. And John Cena is still the top house show draw. He's still the top TV ratings draw. Um, so I, I have looked at um, house show attendance before and I, well, we looked at it or I looked at it in 2016 to see if there was anybody who I didn't, I didn't end up writing an article about this but we've got the the data in the spreadsheet out there uh, I looked at trying to try to look at house show attendance in North America to see if there's anybody who was making a you know an appreciable difference and you always see John Cena you know he's like I, mean, I think 14 percent something like that in 2015 and other years before that he's making upwards of a 20 percent positive difference and this is market to market, you know. This is not just average attendances because the, and I think it's the right criticism is that, well, you can't just you know look at what Cena does and compare his average attendances against everybody else because John Cena is probably going to be put in the big cities versus whoever's on the B, on the B tour. So true, but I, I do find that when you look at the average uh, uh, house show attendance for a certain tour, so let's say the SmackDown tour. You know, in Q1, it looked like SmackDown was actually beating the Raw side in terms of average house show sizes. And then in Q2, Raw was killing them. And one of the biggest differences between the two was that John Cena wasn't on those house shows in Q2. And so I, I do think there's that element, too, which is to say maybe against a Raw show, he's not as big of a draw. But against a non-Cena SmackDown show, he is a big draw. Yeah, I, I would expect that. Um so, yeah. And anyway, I, I enjoy, so, so in, yeah. in in 2016, he only worked something like 15 house shows that year because he was injured for a lot of it and he was part timing for a lot of it. But but in, in that year, on the shows that he was on, not a huge sample, but on the shows that he was on, he doesn't make a remarkable difference like he had in years prior. And so far in this year, in 2017, he's worked upwards of 20 house shows now in, in North America, and he still isn't making the difference that he used to make. So. And you can look at it going back to – I've got data. And I did that Seeking Alpha article uh, last year. You can go back to, the, I think, at least to 2009 and see John Cena makes a remarkable difference when you compare markets to – if you compare an attendance to the average attendance in that city, you know, both with and without Cena, you see that Cena makes a big difference. And in 2016, so far in 2017, I'm not seeing that. And you don't see and that might, you don't see Roman Reigns might, making a huge difference either, but it's it's yeah, and and that might also be a factor of the brand split, right? Where in the past we 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 gave up the brand split, 
and then now we only have a couple years here where it's one roster, and now we have two rosters where one is clearly much stronger than the other one. Um, and think, think it's clear that we, like which one? Because I don't, I don't think it's obviously clear that one is stronger than the other. I, I think from a, I don't, I don't mean from a working standpoint. Mm-hmm. I mean from a house show draw standpoint. I think having one brand where you're going to have Roman Reigns, and you have another brand, and Roman Reigns and Seth Rollins, and I. I I guess the women have changed a little bit, so it, it's not as strong now that Charlotte's over on, on SmackDown for my story here. But I was going to say, compared to a Kevin Owens and an AJ and a Baron Corbin, and a, um, you do at least have the, the Charlotte side on there. I, I don't know. I haven't broken it down enough. I guess in my mind, I still see the Raw brand as being a stronger touring brand than the SmackDown brand. But um, you, you could be right that maybe there's just not enough of these standout stars left anymore. You know, clearly we saw AJ meant a lot when he was on the indie scene. Mm-hmm. I think clearly AJ is a star in terms of a workhorse inside WWE. I don't believe he's been a big deal on the roster. I think Nakamura is all things to all people. You know, I, I've seen him at the NXT shows. It was exciting to see him there. It was great to see him there. I don't know if he's really making a difference on U.S. attendance, though. I, I don't think anybody's making much of a difference on U.S. attendance as far as I can see. But but there's that on attendance. And, and the other argument for, for Cena being a, a really good difference maker uh, still is that you know, on, the, on that July 4th episode of SmackDown, the rating only fell about 2% from what it was in, in all of June, which is... A, which is Are you telling me that it's worse than other years? What's worse than other years? That that this July 4th rating usually is a bomb? In, in, in other instances where they've had a TV taping that aired on July 4th, the, the rating dropped a lot harder than it did this year. Yeah, you did you did some good work on this. You showed that in t- 2002 it dropped 40% versus the June average. Mm-hmm. In 2005 it dropped 35%. In 2008 it dropped 29%. In 2011 it dropped 23%. 2014 it dropped 27%. 2016 it dropped 17%. And this is actually alternating between SmackDown Raw, SmackDown Raw, SmackDown Raw, SmackDown. Yeah. Uh, because of of how calendar cycles work. And I I just thought, wow, that's you know. I think everyone should be impressed that. Yeah. And then, uh, I don't think we've, we've pointed it out yet, but this, this this is the episode where Cena makes his TV return after being off TV since probably WrestleMania. And advertising it, right, no less. Right. You know, they made a big deal for several weeks leading up to it that we were going to see John Cena on the July Fourth uh, SmackDown. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time, Dave, uh, for instance, kept thinking, "Why are you going to waste it on that? Why don't you put him on Raw? Why Why are you going to waste it on that on this week show?" And uh, the one thing I can say is it, it, he definitely made a difference. Um, I will agree that, you know, okay, you were able to keep the rating a little better than normal. What was the value of that? But that's always the question about TV ratings is what's the value of that? What are you telling people? Why are you getting those eyeballs? What are you trying to teach them by by capturing them? You're, you're ensuring the safety of your TV rights. I don't know. Um, but so so – and I think that part of that argument too is where, where if you're going to argue that Cena is a stronger draw than Reigns still, which I wouldn't argue the opposite. I wouldn't argue that Reigns is a decidedly stronger draw than Cena. But um, if you look at the YouTube views, I would think the YouTube views would be reflective of if we had the quarter hour data and we adjusted it for all the time slots, I would think it would be different in some ways, but it would be similar to the list of who's performing best uh, 
for YouTube views and, and Reigns and Cena are neck and neck in that department. Agreed. And uh, it, it's it's another great metric. I think like any data, if you pull... No, no it doesn't same... matter. I've had dozens of people tell me this doesn't matter. YouTube, there's, no to... money, there's no money in YouTube. What is the <laughs> point of this? Why do we care about this? But anyway, by the way, I've, the, the stuff that I've been referencing, and we're looking at a Google Doc with some charts and some numbers in it. I'm, I'm working on an article for Flightful that will hopefully be posted uh, probably next week at this point sometime, just explaining... What does it mean for Roman Reigns to be uh, at the, the the top YouTube view you know draw? So you can, you can look for that next week. And it's consistency to me too. Is that you know, like I said, I did the quarter hour study one time, and it came out with Curtis Axel as being one of the biggest draws because he was with Paul Heyman, and he was in a program with Triple H during the time of the study. So the question is, Curtis Axel Axel really a big draw, or is it just having to do with the one time I looked at the one certain period? So the same idea here is if you do this six months or three months or nine months from now and you continue to see the same results, that says a lot to me about the consistency of at least the design of the experiment versus, right. you know, if you see people like Alexa Bliss going way up and way down as a function of whether or not she had the title, then that might just say a lot about, well, they just like to program a woman there and whoever has the title and is in that, that slot right there, be it Alicia Fox or be it Nia Jax, they're going to get that rub. So I, I think it'll be really interesting to see kind of who changes as we now have our first data point uh, at, at time zero. And and it's impossible ever to have all the same conditions be the same. Mm. So it's going to be different. You know, Randy Orton of 2002 means a heck of a lot less than the Randy Orton of today does, who, who means a lot now. So it's it's another good example of, you know, time people change where they are tiered in the company and where they're viewed in the company. Yeah. But clearly comparing Roman Reigns when he's at the top of his game like he is now is, is going to be a fair comparison at least. Yeah, and I think YouTube videos provide an insight that even quarter hours wouldn't provide because you would have to adjust quarter hours for the time slot and even even when you would, I don't know I don't know, I don't know, we'd have to get into the math of like how you would adjust for it. But with YouTube videos, you don't have to make that adjustment, and you don't have a YouTube video can't be put in a preferential position like like a segment on a linear TV show can be. It, it can't, but it can always be promoted. If the Facebook link says click here to see this YouTube video of Roman Reigns right. after the show, so my, that's going to obviously do better. But does that happen? One. Is that happening? Yeah, yeah. I think on on all the all the um. I think the promotion they do on Twitter and other places might might direct certain ones to have a huge hit. I think the fact that the Hardy Boys, for instance, have one of these huge videos on there was probably because they were promoting that Hardy Boys return. Like heavy. So what do you mean by promoting? Like paid advertising or just no, put tweeting it, put it, it on Twitter? Just what the WWE Twitter decides to do, because I, I I don't know if they really decide to push every single video equally. Mm. Because I don't know. Because I know oh, obviously you can post links to social media of videos as many times as you want. But I, I think YouTube has some rule in their guidelines that they at least intend to, and this may have to do more with fake view counts, but they, they have some rules where like if you, I, I, I think this is something that I looked into and I found out when I was doing research for some of the social media articles I did was that, and this is why YouTube is, is a more reliable platform for metrics than other social media platforms are because it's less subject to paid advertising. Like I can't, or at least I'm not supposed to be able to take a YouTube video and promote it. You certainly can't promote it right on the YouTube platform itself. Like you can take a Facebook post or a Twitter post. I guess I'm, I'm thinking more like in the signs of when Jinder says, come and see me in the Pujambi prison, 
match mm-hmm. and he sends me a, a link maybe it's a, to a youtube video and if i get an email blast with the youtube video that's going to do better than one that doesn't have an email blast associated with it are they email blasting youtube videos i'm not sure <laughs> challenging me here you you're incredulous at my explanations of possibilities of of chicanery i'm not getting the emails Uh, from general hall you are you're the you're the one who knows i do oh i do have an email from dr chris nowinski though but anyway you you have an email from dr chris nowinski i'm sure it's not sure it's not real no it's something related to the concussion legacy foundation oh okay yeah uh, which put out a very interesting study this week about their 200-some brains that they looked at and the number of NFL players, 101 of 102 or 109 of 110 or whatever the number was, yeah. of people that, that they diagnosed with CTE. As others have pointed out, this was not a random sample right. of people who died. This was people that you know were contacted by Concussion Legacy Institute and said, so, you know, are you having these issues? Yeah. And we're screening you, and we'd like to get your brain when you die, and all these other things. So these are people uh, the who other... are probably exhi- exhibiting symptoms of CT. I'm positive a large portion of them maybe were not all being drawn to this because they themselves saw the medical effects in their lives at that time. Yeah. Um, clearly, by the fact that the the prevalence rate was very high among NFLers, and it was much lower among people that were much younger and had played at less less serious levels part of this was also a discussion about basically as you go up the chain as you accumulate more and more of these injuries uh you you we see the effects get worse and worse the longer you go in your career like this and so there's that element too where you know you had some people dying of suicide you had some people who were high school students who died and you saw less a prevalence of it but there's a very small sample um what was interesting yeah. you know was some of the other side effects and and things that they showed where they had a table for instance where it said what percentage of people had steroid use abuse? And of this 200-some football players, did you do you know the oh, answer to few. this? Just a few. Just a few. How? Oh, like four, four of them. Four <laughs> of them admitted to taking steroids, which yeah, I am very dubious of. Uh, that, you know, I don't know what the screening exactly was from my understanding. It sounds like a lot of that kind of screening was done by the the telephone and the medical type screening. And I'm sure if you're in your 70s, yeah, you didn't take steroids. I'm sure if you're in your 60s, you might not no longer be taking steroids. But um, to believe that only uh, I, I don't know. Like I, I can think of some 70 year olds who are probably taking steroids. <laughs> Maybe one that tweeted out a picture of his son-in-law today from a certain muscle and fitness cover. I don't know. That doesn't really narrow it down. Yeah, I'm just saying a lot of people have children who are married. A lot of Instagram um, pro- profiles out there. Yeah, but uh, it, it's. I thought it was a great study in the sense that, you know, you need data, you need brains, you need to study this to understand better. I don't think it means that there's a 99% chance that someone's going to have CTE, but I also think it, it showed very clearly that there's a very strong linear relationship to the longer people had been in this profession and the more prevalence it was. And then also all the side effects and all the other, you know, things that they saw, like the high rate of Parkinson's and whatnot. Um, really interesting data, and, and Chris Nowinski was involved with that. If you go into the JAMA study and you look at the footnotes, you'll even see that WWE mentioned because it will say that he has taken money from WWE in the past. Right, um, and they haven't looked so, at a, a wrestler brain since, have they? I don't know. 
I don't know. We don't know what they have or haven't looked at. We know that that's the allegation that they, they're they trying to make through the CTE study is that basically WWE, by putting, I think Paul Levesque is actually on their board of directors or their board of advisors or something of that nature, Yeah. even uh, for the Concussion Legacy Institute or the Sports Legacy Institute or whatever it's actually called now. And, and we never um, found out uh, whether they were going to look at China for uh, CTE, right? I don't remember if that was claimed or not. I, I, I'm sure I, it was. I remember reading that, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if I, I just looked it up. She's, was... she's been dead for over a year, and we, we still don't know. Yeah, and and you know, China and her death and the thing that you you had a lot of different people who were making statements on her behalf, and whether or not, say, her manager would have had the right to give her brain to it versus maybe her family might be a little different. So I think that can be also some of the confusion is that she obviously had a contentious relationship with her family, but at the same time, in terms of secession, uh, the, some of those people might actually have a larger legal claim to what happened to her body after she died. First thing that comes up is China's manager confirms deceased wrestlers brain donated for CTE. So yeah, that's the manager who said, yeah. And, and which is possible that they did do it. I just saying, I don't know if, if, you know, there was a lot of things being said, and that manager was very um, duplicative, mm-hmm. duplicitous, yeah, to say the least. Uh, Brock Lesnar, uh, big question mark about whether or not, you know, you're just talking about how big he was for YouTube hits, and yet he might be going back to UFC or somewhere else for MMA in the future here. Uh, comes up, he's a 40-something-year-old man getting himself back into the USADA pool even after while he's in the middle of a lawsuit with Mark Hunt and while he's serving a sentence he already has. Uh, what are your thoughts, uh, very top level, about you know Brock going back to UFC? I think Brock Lesnar is probably being closely advised by Paul Heyman. And Paul Heyman is probably a pretty smart and manipulative person, or I mean that in the nicest way possible, that... And so they they know contracts going to be expiring right after WrestleMania 34, so they want to drum up all this interest and drum up some competition for what a what a future contract would give him. I, does he really want to fight again? I don't know. He is 40, but he did just, he was just what 38 or 39, and he beat Mark Hunt, who's a a, a really skilled professional MMA fighter. And I'm sure there's a ton of money. And, you know, there was this AP article that came out where they they. Talk to Lesnar, which by then, like like Sean Ross Sapp has pointed out, like how do you th- you, do you think it was just by accident that they you know got to talk to Brock Lesnar? You don't think that Brock Lesnar you know specifically wanted to talk to them for a very specific reason? You know, he, you're, you're talking about the man who doesn't even have a phone in his house talking to the AP from Saskatchewan so. somehow was able to uh, uh, connect up with a reporter known for his love of talking to strangers right. about his business. Is, is that a fact that yeah. he doesn't even have a phone? In his that was Saskatchewan that was the story house? was. Somebody was telling the story about like how they had to like schedule calls with Brock to like he would have to go down to that shed that was like a mile from his house because that was like the only place the phone was. Um, you know, I'm I'm amazed they get him to shows every week. It's it's astonishing to me when they when he gets. I I think you know, it's a great example of having UFC by the balls, to put it uh, crudely, is that they desperately need draws. They are at the verge of burning out their biggest star in a uh, co-promoted minor promotion type deal where they might not have Conor McGregor. Um, It's a double-sided – And there's always talk that McGregor's going to make all this money and maybe he's not going to want to do MMA anymore. Exactly. It's it's such a double-sided sword for them because uh, the promotional deal definitely 
draw a lot of interest. You know, you're reading a lot of old timers with some pretty nasty things to say about the whole deal in terms of, of what that promotional tour looked like to them and all the undertones and Connor going on his own direction and Ronda's retired. I mean, Ron WWE is quite a coup right now by getting Ronda to do an angle with them uh, as part of the May young classic. Oh, spoiler alert. And, well, I, I think that one's out there. I, I don't think that's a lie. I'm not saying who's it with or what they're doing. I don't think it's a, any, a surprise to anyone to hear that Ronda Rousey is there at the, uh, the NXT. Um, but just the fact that Brock is in that position, you know, it, it puts him good. I don't think there's a way Bellator could make an offer that would be cost effective for them to, you know, try to lure him away. I think he's going to go back to UFC if he's ever going to do something. Obviously, WWE has a lot of final say in these matters. Um, and UFC is desperate to show that they can produce so that they can get, you know, that that hundreds of millions of dollars in TV rights fees. And to a very strange amount... It's almost like it's in WWE's interest to see UFC succeed in this fact, because if UFC gets a big TV deal, people will think WWE is going to get a big TV deal. And so if that means you lend them Brock Lesnar for a big fight to help your you know, standing in the community, I'm not saying that that's the calculus, because I absolutely don't think it is, but I don't think it hurts them. And if I was George Berrios, I would definitely be on the side of make UFC look good because it will help WWE look good down the line I hadn't uh, thought for of better that. or for worse. They, they should they should do an interpromotional angle. Well, that that I think they would be worried about because UFC hates the idea of being conflated with pro wrestling. Yeah. I think Brock is, you know, that that if, if this was Japan figure. Yeah, yeah. But UFC, especially from a commission standpoint, that they don't want to be seen as, you know, fixing fights and rigging things. And it's pretty funny if you read that Mark Hunt lawsuit, you know, they it's basically a RICO lawsuit, basically organizing, saying that it's a organized crime and it wasn't a fair fight and it was never fair. And UFC always knew Brock Lesnar was going to fail the drug test and all this other stuff. So um, what what's funniest thing to me is I think UFC, if they could right now, would also like to get on the Barrios model of inventing more days in the year because they would love to see Brock serve out his suspension uh, magically and still be able to fight in December. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll see. I, I think it's an interesting calculation because obviously Brock can be done at WrestleMania and then go back to fighting and then still come back to wrestling, you know, long after I can still see that happening. Cause I can see him just kind of giving up on fighting at a certain point. Um, yeah. at the I mean, same I, point, I could see him just, I could see him just going to the one that has whoever's going to offer him the most money and he'll do a couple fights. And then if he does a couple fights and he goes away from, from UFC and he comes back, he'll come back to WV probably. And then he'll be, you know, he'll be fresh because we'll have been off WTV for a couple of years. I mean, you know, how good that is for for your uh, for the buzz around you is to be off TV and then I'll you know then I'll be a big star again if that's what he chooses to do. He'll come back to face the uh, superstar that we're tired of seeing week over week over week, Mr. CM Punk, who had already been back for quite some time by that. That's right. That way. That's right. <laughs> so I had predicted to somebody who asked me, should I sell my my shares of WWE right now because uh, stock's been doing pretty well. Uh, we had a bunch of executives get uh, paid out in stock, and they all sold their stock just earlier this week. Yeah. Um, and of course, the rumor had been that you know maybe the the network number wouldn't be so great, so maybe stock would tank. But as of right now, stock's at twenty one eighty nine, up about one percent from yesterday. Uh, throughout the day, it went way up to about almost yeah twenty two fifty, uh, for a little bit, and all the way down to twenty one twenty five. But for the most part, it's been pretty much even for the day. 
but it, it says a lot to me. I see after hours it's down actually four four percent already, down to twenty one bucks flat. Um but the reason I bring this up is is I had made a prediction that by Monday at noon the stock would be lower than it was at Wednesday at noon. Um and so right now I'm not looking very good in that prediction category. But we have seen historically it takes analysts a day to digest uh WWE numbers. Sometimes they really don't like them after a day. Sometimes they immediately don't like them. <laughs> and sometimes I think if they do like them, they just let it slide. Like it, there's a buildup on the way to the announcement. And then very rarely does the stock seem to explode afterwards. If anything, it kind of goes up a little bit and then plummets. Yeah. So, I think the last uh, few quarterly calls we've gotten, the, uh, they sell on results and the stock will drop, you know, a few whole percent. And, but it comes back eventually. The stock is ever since, the bubble burst on what they thought they were going to get from TV rights. The stock has been very healthy. You know, I, I think it's been a, I've, I've been telling people this for months and I guess I've been right. Is that this is a good long-term investment until uncertainty in 2018 or 19. Yeah. And I mean, you have a lot of these companies that are out there saying, Hey, it's going to hit 24 bucks or 25 bucks. I think Needham when they first launched the network said 30 and I said they were crazy and I was right. <laughs> uh, but uh, at one point the stock exploded uh, right before the last TV round, where it went very high. Um, let's see here if I can find it on this. I got it up. Went to thirty dollars and ninety four cents on March fourteenth, two thousand fourteen. Yeah, yeah, just for for a few minutes there, and there was even all these rumors going around right at that time. Uh, but you can see how dramatically it fell right after that. When you look at that graph, it looks like a little mountain, and then you know you can say JBL, JBL repelling off the side of it on his way back down. Um, it been a great time to buy. Yeah, so uh, one other thing I wanted to kind of look at with uh, WWE, uh, Jinder is all over India pub, and uh, the Great Khali, of course, coming back. Some people asking, why did the Great Khali come back? Uh, a lot of people don't remember this, but Great Khali is a U.S. citizen. And so it's a lot easier for WWE to hire a U.S. citizen than it is to hire a foreign national. Uh, they actually have to do a lot of paperwork and do a lot of work to get foreign nationals into the country to work for them, uh, even as independent contractors. So one thing is, I bet you it wasn't that hard to get Great Kali back uh, from paperwork side. Number two, he can do lots of local publicity in India, which I think is great for WWE is because they want someone who speaks fluently and could be, you know, doesn't have to be on TV every week, could be out, out there just being a big deal. Number three, you looked up the numbers. We both said Greg Khali has always been a bigger deal in India than, than Jinder Mahal ever has been. But the one thing I will say is Jinder Mahal has been getting a lot of press over the last six months here uh, where you've been seeing a lot of articles showing up about him. And so there's another one where you found he was quoted as saying he had creative control. Is that true? Yeah, well, that's why Jinder Mahal – uh, that's why Greg Khali did a run-in because he probably just booked it himself with his creative control. And that's why you know he's back in the WWE. Would you agree? So Hulk Hogan, Bret Hart. That's right. Bret Hart had creative control. That's right. I forgot about that. (laughs) Is there anybody else? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. The Outsiders. The Outsiders have creative control in WCW? Well, you know. I mean, if you – there's a fascinating lawsuit, you know, about it. Again, I'll give that plug for the uh, pro wrestling lawsuit collection. There's a whole bunch of lawsuits all about the comments – that uh, Vince Russo made at the WCW show where they shot on Hogan and then Hogan felt that he had been double crossed and then Booker T ended up as the champion. Mm-hmm. And there was all sorts of lawsuits about what does it mean to have creative control? Bash of the Beach, 99 or 2000. That's the one. Yeah. So is the argument about basically if 
they can do a disparaging interview about you in such a way that means makes you seem like you're worthless. It doesn't matter if you have control over match outcomes, or is that basically violating the the spirit of what creative control is? And Hulk Hogan basically prevailed in that one. Uh, he he is the great prevailer. Uh, you know, of all the people I've gone through lawsuits on, um, Vince McMahon is probably number one on pro wrestling lawsuits just because he always gets thrown in there uh, whenever they're suing Titan or WWE. But number two might be uh, Hulk Hogan because uh, you have the the lawsuit over the name Hulk with Marvel. You have the lawsuit, um, of course, with Gawker. You have the lawsuit where he uh, chokes out um, uh, 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 Richard uh, Belzer. Belzer. You have Belzer. You have um, just other lawsuits year over year. You know, the Bash of the Beach lawsuit. <laughs> you have uh, just other things that came up year after year after year. He might be near the top for the most pro wrestling lawsuits I've ever seen of any one person uh, being associated with besides Vince. Yeah, the immortal. Uh, the immortal, yeah. yeah. Uh, him and Jerry McDivitt, maybe maybe he'll do the speech for Jerry McDivitt when he goes into the Hall of Fame. That's right. Um, Ultimate Warrior might be up there, too, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> I'll have to ask Bix if, what he thinks is, is the top for this. Um, if anyone's interested in joining uh, kind of the work that we're doing here, of course, you can always uh, send me a DM and find out more about it. We've We've had a great kind of response to that and we're getting lots of new stuff i just got new some new stuff today i have a whole i have two boxes of ventura filings waiting for me at the district court for when i'm going to show up and get them scanned really soon we had a a pretty cool lawsuit from mid-south we got all those those uh um contracts and the financials like i talked about two weeks ago i put up a bunch of stuff about the uh the paul white boxing lawsuit that is still continuing on to this day in florida a lot of people even bix who wrote all about this lawsuit the first time around didn't even realize that it had started up again um i found the daphne versus tna lawsuit uh when she was suing over getting injured and working for tna that was really interesting i found a whole bunch of nashville stuff you know involving steiner and lots of other people uh, and all the times that TNA didn't pay their bills, you know, Jeff Jarrett versus the alarm company, things like that. Uh, trying to think of some of the other great stuff that we've added to the drive. A whole bunch of really cool alien files, like I mentioned. When I say alien, I don't mean <laughs> UFO, UFO alien. I mean, like, Dino Bravo is an alien. Uh, Andre the Giant was an alien type stuff. Um, but uh, we've had some really great material added to the drive recently. And, and of course, if people want to contribute 30 bucks for a six-month uh, access to the drive, the, the money goes to us basically going out to get all these lawsuits. I got a Charlie Norris, uh, who was, do you, do you remember Charlie Norris? Well, I, Way before you I, I saw you talking about it. It's, it's the Native American guy, right? Yeah, he, um, who sued, uh, over WCW. Uh, yeah, he sued Greg Gagne. That's right. And WCW basically saying he was asked to do a war dance and to do a tomahawk chop. And specifically the Tomahawk Chop, because Turner owned the Braves, and so they wanted to incorporate right. that into what he was doing. And uh, basically saying it was a big discrimination. And what's amazing about it is you read what they he wrote in 1994, and then you go ahead and you look at what Bobby Walker, who sues in 97, and, I, uh, and then you go ahead to 2000 and you look at what Sonny Ono writes, and you hear the same people in developmental and what they say – and what they told the guys and what they were telling the, the, the African-American wrestlers and the Asian wrestlers and, in this in his case, the Native American wrestler, 
Um, and it's it's shocking just how consistent some of this testimony is. And of course, it's easier to collect the testimony and kind of build on it year after year after year. But it's also really shocking that this promotion could not understand in the context of being this worldwide, you know, Time Warner, Turner, that they didn't understand what a huge liability they had on their hands by not addressing some of the behavior of these people and uh, just how blatant some of it is. I think at some points it gets to be a little um, uh, uh, over the top in terms of what people claim was said to them. But I think when you have, you know, 15 different people point to the same sort of language being said by the same person, it's pretty clear that person had a history of saying something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I say so, anyways, all those wrestling is more politics than politics. Yeah. So uh, it, it's shocking uh, stuff there. And so th those are a lot of this stuff has never been seen before by 99% uh, of the people because uh, it was either before it was on Pacer and before it was digitized or um, just people have not known where to look, you know, like all the Daphne versus TNA stuff. I don't think a lot of people realized what kind of bizarre court system you had to get all that from. And uh, I found a, a basically a Nashville server that for a, a flat fee, you get access to this court clerk service and it's amazing you can just you know search for anything that's happened in nashville and so you find lots of interesting things you want to find dixie carter's divorce from uh pre-tna it's on there uh you know that's not necessarily one of the files that we we added to the drive but that's just kind of an example of kind of the the how unlimited this uh, uh service is that i happen to stumble across for nashville so it, it's very interesting for me i mean you've um, had quite a few people uh signing up for the for the professional wrestling legal research and preservation group huh yeah I, I i've been pleased that we can make the money to do it because bix and i now have enough money to go out and we're trying to like i said we're going to get this ventura lawsuit I actually have it i'm, I'm going to be scanning it uh hopefully by next week and um we're, we're right now we're trying to get what is my white whale which is the ed Colley uh demolition lawsuit versus wwf that ran from 1990 one all the way to 2002 you know it just went on and on and on and on so there's just hundreds and hundreds of filings and none of it's been digitized so a lot of it is us trying to choose what we're going to get from it and when you have to go out to the federal record center they cost an extraordinary fee and then they charge like 50 cents a page i even i i tried to bring a scanner to the ventura lawsuit and they we're like, well, we, we really prefer if we can make the copies at 50 cents a, a thing and i was like well technically can i and they said, well, I, there's nothing that prevents you from doing that. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. Because I, I don't, I mean, literally, they charge you almost $100 to get a physical file. And so it's it's just absurd in my book that, you know, you need to then keep shelling out 50 cents a page just to get records. And once you have those records that you can't just, you know, take my phone out and take pictures of it. So it, it's really getting pretty pedantic. Uh, so I, I do hope that there's a little bit of, of court monetization. So I, I, I shed a tear every time I hear that the court system is continuing to have its budget slashed because it goes to more and more restrictive and bizarre uh, initiatives. But uh, we're very excited with all the documents we find because a lot of them just have never been exposed before. And uh, I talked to you all about Daphne before uh, we lost the video, the audio, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. You mentioned so, it. So yeah, that's that's been uh, some cool stuff going on there. Uh, let's maybe hit upon uh, New Japan just a little bit since we have a couple of things about sure. New Japan that have been going on. I saw you had a George Carroll interview, which um, a lot of people like me 
did not even know there's a guy who's apparently the U.S. operations director for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Well, he used to be involved with uh, Ring of Honor, and I can't remember why he was. This was. Do you remember the story? Like George Carroll was was fired, or in some way or another, he left his position at, at Ring of Honor, and that was the position that Kevin Kelly assumed. Mm, yes, I remember all this about the weird cost cutting and and the emails yeah. and the factions and all that. And now cost now, of course, Kevin Kelly isn't he like full time New Japan? And, but then he's still right. actually doing commentary for Ring of Honor, but it's like on he a was. one by one basis. He was, but I saw him make a statement not too long ago saying, you know, kind of like saying this is the, you know he's all done with Ring of Honor and he's just a New Japan commentator now. Yeah, but then I th- I could have sworn then he like still was ended up doing more of it. And they were just like, yeah, I, I, they just meant his contract was up, and then he's, you know, still doing a one-off. Or I don't even know. I can't keep it all straight. But George Carroll did an interview. And I'm not going to pretend I watch Ring of Honor TV. So. <laughs> they said, we're, there are plans to open up a dojo and an official L.A. office that will function with business and meetings. <laughs> and then and what's funny is this is an interview with, with uh, George Carroll. Yeah. I think it was to WrestleZone. But then he goes, which yeah. is uh, insane at this time. <laughs> Right. First quarter of next year, we should have some updates just based on the marketing team and when we can get want they want to get stuff out. I know this is very vague, but we can't get too deep into it. There's a game plan in place, and we don't want to jump two steps ahead, fall down, and have to pick ourselves up. We are being very strategic on how everything's getting out. In the beginning of the interview, he more or less alludes to the idea of saying that uh, too many things get out about their plans in general, and so they don't like that. And I can see that very much from the Japanese mindset that, you know, uh, in the same way that Dave Meltzer doesn't really know who's winning, winning the G1, but uh, uh, is more than happy to let everyone know who, who already has won the Mae Young Classic. Uh, the Japanese do seem to be a little bit more protective about this stuff, and I'm sure, like you say, a guy from his experience also doesn't like all the rumor-mongering. Right. Well, Japanese wrestling has never done something like... It's just not in their wrestling culture to do, you know... to like tape SmackDown two days in advance or to tape an entire season of a wrestling show uh, you know, months in advance, and then to try to keep it quiet. You know, it's just Japanese wrestling's always had more of a sports approach from the from, I guess, how those companies deal with the media and vice versa. Yes, but that's not to say there hasn't been a lot of backbiting and behind the scenes, you know, type things. You know, all the the strange jumps in the '80s and the '90s between New Japan and All Japan, and you know, mm-hmm. all the things with war and FMW and all the angles and things that people put together mm-hmm. there. You know, there is a lot of rumor mongering that goes on with all that as well. So it's not like I've, they... I've, I've, I've thought about this like a lot. Is that what, you know, in Japan there's. Like there's these sports sites and I guy guy assume newspapers because I was always under the impression that periodicals were way more popular in Japan than they ever were here. So maybe less so uh, in current times, but at least in, in previous decades, you know, we always hear about the weekly gong, weekly pro wrestling, you know, these hard copy wrestling uh, publications. And the and, and and again, like I said, all these sports sites cover pro wrestling. And they cover it. You know, this is something I used to do when I was like a teenager. Is you know try to cover japanese wrestling news yeah you go to yahoo and you can find you know the noah results on yahoo.jp right Right. you you find all these you go to these sports sites and you see pro wrestling right alongside soccer and boxing and all these things it's just unheard of uh, as an american wrestling fan well until until you know the advent of the espn vertical yeah but they're treating it differently still like i yeah, it's more. It's it's probably more uh, analogous even to like Rolling Stone, where like you know they'll cover music, but then they'll cover The Walking Dead, and then they'll cover WWE or 
or USA Today sometimes will do it as well. But I, I agree. It, it is a different mindset. It's a different culture. But like um, when ESPN and CBS Sports cover WWE, they still cover it as if it's a work. But I feel like when Nikon Sports or Tokyo Sports covers pro wrestling, they cover it like it's a shoot. Like they, they don't talk about like what they thought of the latest G1 Climax show. They talk about the news and they treat it like it's real. I think a lot of it too has to do with just the beneficial relationships that these companies created with the reporters over the years where you see a lot more of that where you know there yeah. there was a certain relationship between the company and the reporter and so a certain amount of it implied access and then at the same time a certain amount of what they wanted them to report on and feeding and back and forth and you know the the culmination of all that with uh uh you know obviously when they had the was it the weekly pro wrestling show or, or whatever it was where they all the, the different Tokyo companies show, yeah. where all the, the different 95. companies worked yeah exactly so it's just like they 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 always had a much more synergistic relationship compared to the way it is in the United States between the media and uh, a WWE and, you, and we we obviously see bits of it of course when they try to do those conference calls you know before the NXT show and uh, who is it who always gets the first call first and uh, says Mike oh, Johnson yeah yeah way to go Paul it's great to have yeah. you and uh, all that so it you know we, we are our own worst enemy uh, in this country a lot of times as well. Uh, one thing following up on our, our show from a couple weeks ago, Rich Thomas, uh, uh, a great dad friend of mine from uh, California who had emailed us about, you know, what might it look like if, if new Japan were to expand in the U S uh, and rich, rich was just kind of thinking about all the different things, you know, that goes on with that about, you know, can you do big event weekends and, and can you do shorter tours in the U S at a time and, or could you even set up a second touring brand like you and I talked about and what the G1 blocks in the U.S. might look like. A lot of people have brought up the fact that in a couple of years, uh, maybe it's even just next year, uh, with uh, the Olympics will be happening during G1. So will there be... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.